Welcome back to the Plant-Based DFW podcast show. I am Maya Acosta, and my co-host, Dr. Rizwan Bukhari, is not available for this bonus episode, but I wanted to get it out to you guys anyway. So in this episode, I'm basically taking about 10 hours of content and reducing it down to less than three hours with highlights of the top 10 plant-based DFW episodes of 2020. In other words, these were the top 10 podcast episodes that people listened to the most last year, and this is based off analytics. You can check out any of our episodes visiting our website at plantbaseddfwpodcast.com. You can also see the video version of this at our YouTube channel at bit.ly forward slash plantbaseddfw. Let's get started. I will add timestamps in the show notes so that you can jump to any of the interviews. And I will also include the list of the top 10 guests, along with some points, uh, highlights. Coming in at number 10, one of my favorite Facebook group leaders, Joey Troxel of Plant Based Dads. He uh, created a YouTube channel basically to hold himself accountable, then started a Facebook support group so that he could support other people. And one of his videos, a kitchen renovation video went viral and really got him out there. And that's how I found out about him. So make sure you check that, check him out. And I'll put a link to the full episode. Coming in at number nine is Carolina Mueller of Houston, Texas. She is a Food for Life instructor. That's from the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. And she's also a Plan Pure leader from Plan Pure Communities. Um, she came into her diet by reading one of Dr. John McDougall's book. At number eight, we have Stephanie Dreyer of the Batch Cooking Club. I recently interviewed her again because that was such a popular interview. Um, she talks to us about how the Kind Diet book by Alicia Silverspoon was the book that really made her go vegan overnight. Her mission is to get families to cook more often in their kitchen. So she developed this wonderful way of batch cooking that is efficient. It gets you in and out of the kitchen. You don't spend a lot of time there and yet you enjoy cooking. So make sure to check her out. And number seven, I have the Lifestyle Medicine Physicians in Texas episode. This one was really popular as well. Um, I basically showcase four individuals who are physicians who are now boarded in lifestyle medicine. So the, uh, the first being a couple, Drs. Munish and Bandana Chawla of Houston, Texas, they actually have a practice that they opened. And they talk about how they each came to veganism and this way of living and eventually plant based nutrition and lifestyle medicine. And then you'll hear Dr. Riz talk about his work. And he'll explain again, the difference between a vascular surgeon and a cardiologist. Believe it or not, a lot of people still think he's a cardiologist. And Dr. Nancy Erickson, who is also from Houston, Texas, she's an OB-GYN, and she specializes in high-risk pregnancies. She talks about her own personal story of really managing menopause when she went plant-based. 
So the Lifestyle Medicine Physicians in Texas episode came in at number seven. Okay, at number six came Dr. Rizwan Bukhari, my co-host. He speaks on cardiovascular disease and how it all develops, basically referring to the standard American diet, which consists of a lot of processed foods, high in saturated fat and cholesterol, actually damage the endothelial cells. So make sure to check that one out too. At number five, we have Dr. Richa Mitzel. She is an obesity medicine physician and also boarded in lifestyle medicine. So I had never spoken with someone in this field. And I really like um, the consideration that she takes in speaking about uh, weight issues and how she addresses them. And she's also developed a program to educate other other physicians on how to address weight issues with their patients. At number four, we have Sean and Dan Muskaluk. I actually saw them in the documentary Eating You Alive before I even met them in person. I met them later on in the Vegan Cruise 2019. And really, they have an amazing story, which is why they were featured in Eating You Alive. Sean um, dealt with weight issues for many years and then discovered the video The Perils of Dairy by Dr. John McDougall, which changed her life around. And her husband, Dan... Um, two years, I believe, into their new way of living on a plant-based diet. Two years later, he developed stage four kidney cancer. Coming in at number three, our guest was Karen Wang of the DFW Care Organization. This is a Chinese-American group that self-organized within 24 hours of hearing about the pandemic to provide PPEs for Dallas healthcare workers and for people on the front line. This was such an incredible uh, conversation. We also worked closely with Karen as she provided Dr. Riz some PPEs for his hospital. Coming in at number two, Dr. Arthi Thanguru. She is a plant-based endocrinologist in the San Antonio area and specializes in all things hormones. She actually treats diabetes, thyroid issues, PCOS, and other conditions. And this was such an amazing conversation because she addressed a lot of concerns um, that people have and is so well educated in this field. Um, So she's triple warded. Make sure to check her out. And coming in at number one is Dr. John McDougall the creator of the Start Solution, who is one of the pioneers in the field of plant-based nutrition and also lifestyle medicine. He speaks about the research that he was doing early on in his career and how he discovered the power of plant-based foods. We talk about his life's work. We talk about his live-in program and also about the Lifetime Achievement Award that he received from the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. Today, Dr. John McDougall focuses a lot on educating people about food choices and how eating animal-based foods is the greatest contributor to harming our environment. He's very passionate about that. And so I hope that all of these 10 episodes contribute to you and help you in some way. You can share with a loved one, share the link and let them know that listening to podcasts actually is free. You do not have to pay to listen to any other podcasts. And if you go to our main website, plantbaseddfwpodcast.com, Pick, a, you know, an episode and look and you will see um, to the right hand side all the different platforms that we're on. You can click on any of them and whether it's iHeartRadio or Pandora or uh, Apple Podcasts, you will find a way to listen on your phone or on any of your devices. You can also download the episodes so that you can continue to listen to them at your own time. I hope that you enjoy this episode and let me know what you think. 
Around 16 years ago, Joey decided to become a vegetarian after looking at a pedo pamphlet that was given to him by a physician. During this time, Joey tried all sorts of diet programs, with the last one being Weight Watchers. And after three years of being on Weight Watchers and being hungry all the time, he only had lost about 18 pounds. So he decided to take another approach. Eventually, he discovered the START solution by Dr. John McDougall. He decided to create his YouTube channel called Plant-Based Dads to hold himself accountable to this new way of living. His husband, Tim, has a segment on the channel called Baking with Tim. Today, they have close to 12,000 subscribers and they include do-it-yourself projects as well as a variety of recipe videos mainly focused on eating starchy foods. They also have a Facebook group by the same name where Joey holds Start Solution challenges from time to time. Make sure to check the show notes for all their links, including the Etsy store. When I first met uh, my husband, Tim, uh, 16 years ago, he works at a hospital and we went to a doctor's party even though he's not a doctor he works with them so we go to their parties and i was just speaking with the wives right and one of them was judy this girl judy and then you know it was over and a, a week later he comes home and says hey judy sent this pamphlet home to you right like i'm a happy meat-eating person i'm not thinking about becoming a vegetarian or taking up vegetarianism and I'm like, and so he hands me this pamphlet and I go, who's Judy, right? And he's like, the girl from the party you spoke with. I was like, oh, okay. And, you know, I threw it on the counter. And then at some point I was going to the restroom and I took the, I don't know why I don't do this, but I took the pamphlet with me and I'm sitting in the restroom reading a pamphlet. And it was a PETA pamphlet, right? Yeah. And it was about, you know, how pigs went insane before they're slaughtered and their hooves can get to, I mean, all that stuff, right? And I just was like, why am I reading this, right? And by the time I was done there, I was, I was a vegetarian, like, I, I, I didn't have a plan. I didn't even like vegetables, right? Like, mm-hmm. vegetables, right? Broccoli, what? So, you know, I was a chicken person. So that moment right there, the only thing that I knew was, I can't contribute to this ever again. That was it. I was a vegetarian. And that continued on for 12 years where I, and I, I mean, I gained a bunch of weight, right? Like, I thought, you know, I go to Thanksgiving, I'm just eating the mashed potatoes with the butter on it, right? I'm not even having the lean turkey. So... What did you say to Judy at the party that made her think that you'd be receptive? So when I came out of the bathroom and said, hey, I'm a vegetarian now, and, I, and Tim's like, what? And I'm like, yeah, uh, that, that, this is what that uh, paperweight, that pita pamphlet, Judy sent me a pita plant. And the first thing he said was, what did you say to her? <laughs> I was like, I have no idea. And that's the odd part, because we're still friends today, right? Like, I don't know why she thought that, like, that we didn't even talk about being you know, vegetarians or whatever. I mean, we were talking about, you know, the husbands and all that stuff. So I don't know, but somehow she saw something, like, mm-hmm. right? She did. I'm always curious, what is it that allows someone to flip that switch inside their brain? And you just read a pamphlet and suddenly in that moment, everything changed. I find that curious. I say people are change when they're ready to change. Yeah, I, I, I don't know how that came to be, but it was enough for me to understand that I was contributing to something that was horrible and I didn't want to be part of it anymore. So many people come to what I'm doing because they want to change their health a lot based on what Dr. Riz is telling them, right? Like, you know, you could be in better health by eating better. So they're coming that path. So talk to us about the starch solution. How did that become meaningful for you? You know, during this time, right, changing over to veganism, um, I was watching a lot of uh, videos and I was on board with the high carb, low fat. I wasn't doing it, but I didn't know, you know, the starch solution was a version of that. So 
I was just starting to understand that maybe the, the keto type of eating wasn't really healthy, right? And that maybe, you know, I was meant to eat whole foods, right? That knowledge was kind of coming to me. Um, and so, you know, high carb, low fat was kind of a, a thing I was looking at. And then, of course, I watched a video from uh, Dr. Doug Lyle, uh, you know, how to lose weight without losing your mind. Because at this point, 12 years into this, I was 50 pounds heavier, right? So as much as I don't want to harp on weight, I, it was in a position where I needed to lose weight. So the Sauce Solution came about. Uh, and I was kind of like, you know, Dr. McDougall is very, you know, entrancing. You start reading, and then the next thing you know, you're like, oh, yeah, that's right. Oh, yeah, I told that. That makes sense, right? So starch isn't the bad guy. And now, of course, I love potatoes and all that. So I was able to eat starches without feeling guilt. So it kind of was definitely a natural way of eating. So, yeah, I mean, I, I have that conversation every day. Even people who understand that healthy carbs are okay, then they'll go, but I got to stay away from starches. And I, well, well, those are healthy carbs, you know. And, and Plant-based dads. How did that come about? So my, the reason I started that channel was when I became, made a switch to veganism. I just, I thought it was going to be really tough, Right. Um, so I thought I would show people what I'm eating and kind of, I mean, I didn't expect anyone to watch me, right? Like I, if I got 10 views, I'd be really excited. Like 10 people saw what I was doing. I, that's amazing. Right? So I, I just wanted to be able to put something up there and hold myself accountable each week and, and make sure I had to, you know, show everyone each week that here's what I'm eating this week. Even if I thought, well, you know, I could fall, but at least I have to get back on track because I've got a commitment to everyone. Right. And, you know, in the end, it was really no problem at all. But the videos kind of kept on happening because I was now, instead of just having these videos to keep me accountable, I was actually cooking on camera going, oh, you know, I kind of like doing this, right? Like, I kind of like showing people what I'm eating. And, you know, you think, who would ever want to see what I'm eating? But the one thing people ask me for today is, oh, are you doing a what I eat in a day video? I'm like, I did three of them, you know. (laughs) So... People are definitely interested in what you're eating and how it compares to what they're eating, and they want ideas. But this channel was just to keep me accountable, right? And that was the only purpose at the time. And so, and every blue moon, your husband Tim joins you uh, with a recipe or so. Uh, tell us what it's like when you're working together making a video. Those are my favorite videos, and those get the most reaction because, you know, it's and again, we don't talk about, I don't talk about me being married to Tim on the video. I just, I don't want it to be a political statement. But the fact is, it comes across blatantly, right? And as you know, working with your spouse, they'll do something and you're filming and you're like, why? And it all comes across as if, like, we're having a Costello, right? Like, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm making fun of him or he's like laughing and none of this is what I wanted, but it winds up being good entertainment, right? Those videos always do well. And we're so opposite like most couples, I have everything written down. I know where I'm going to be, you know, at what time. Like I sat here 30 minutes ahead of time and waited for 11.58 to start. Tim will just show up when he gets there 10 minutes late and have missed nothing, right? And then the party starts, right? So, like, if you invite me to your house to your party and it's 8 o'clock, I'm going to get there at 7.45 and no one's there yet and you don't even have the food out. And I'm going to be there, right? And you're going to be like, this is really uncomfortable, right? That's me. So that's how working with your spouse, it's either really good for, for YouTube or television, or it's really bad. And it just works out to be really good. So you went plant-based, you went starch solution, and the weight started falling off you. Tell us about that. For years as a vegetarian, I was on Weight Watchers for three years. 
And I had lost 13 pounds on Weight Watchers, maybe with like 18. And at the end of the three years, I was right back where I started. So, but I loved going to the meetings. I loved listening to these people. We would walk out, like someone would go, oh, I fell and, you know, I had a bunch of chips and I gained a pound this week. And we'd be like, you got this, you can, you can do this, turn it around, it doesn't define you. And here I am saying all this stuff, right? And, but I loved it, right? And they'd be like, oh, you're right, I got this. You know, and they'd come back the next week and you were so right. So I loved all of that. Um, but I hated the idea that their diet was based around eggs, like for a vegetarian, eggs and all. And I, like I found myself like needing to eat eggs a lot as a vegetarian. I didn't even like eggs because of the baby chicks, right? So I just, I, I knew that it wasn't, the, the, the way I was eating wasn't working with Weight Watchers and it wasn't working because I was starving myself. Um, so, you know, I wound up quitting after three years and starting to look for something else, which is where I came across the, you know, the, the starch solution and all that. But I wanted to take with me what worked, right? The camaraderie, the support, all that stuff. So I would never say anything bad about, and like Nutrisystem, no, I've done them all. They all have great things about them. Um, but I feel like uh, you could do this yourself with the proper, with an, you know, as an educated eater, right? Which is what a lot of us are doing. And without having to pay a dime, if you just, you know, kind of know that you're not the only one doing it. When did that come about, your, your support group? During vacation of this year, right, uh, we were going to North Carolina to see our family, and we were going to rent a cabin, and then we were going to go to Florida to see uh, Tim's family. So we went to North Carolina, and I rented a cabin, and my sister joined us, and I cooked all of our – we were in a cabin. We stopped at Costco. I cooked all the meals. I grabbed a bunch of potatoes and all that. And I was right on point on my vacation, right? Like I had been losing weight in the start solution. I didn't, I doubt I gained any weight. Then we went to Tim's family, who are a bunch of uh, wonderful people, but they're all scared of cars, right? So uh, we go to the, and we stay, stay at their houses. And, you know, it's hard for me to cook when everyone's like, let's go out and get burritos, right? Every mm -hmm. night. So I wound up coming home from that trip, that part of it, and step on the scale and I gained 10 pounds. Like here I am, I've lost a bunch of weight. I'm Joe Troxel from Plant Based Dad who lost 20 something pounds, inspiring everyone. And like, I, I gained 10.4, I did a whole video of this. I gained 10.4 pounds back. I was like lost. I was depressed. I was like, what happened? Like, well, I know what happened, right? We went out for every meal, you know, I, and I still, I was still a vegan. Like, I never ate an animal product, right? But everything had oil in it, every, you know. So I, I knew that. I couldn't do this alone. So I, I thought, I'm going to start a Facebook group, right? I'm going to just, you know, announce in my next video, maybe a few people will join. And maybe there's someone, a few people that we can kind of just push each other. I, I started thinking about what, what did I, what could I have done, like if I was on Weight Watch? So I would have went to a meeting to get back on track. Why would I have done that? Because people are there, right? So I started a Facebook group and, you know, put out the next video saying, hey, we've got a Facebook group. If you're on the Starch Solution and you think you might need some assistance, join, which was in July, and now we have 3,000 people in this wow. group, right? And it's just all people who want to support each other and, and are learning about the Starch Solution and, you know, or maybe some of them have wonderful stories, right? It's just amazing. I'm teaching them to meal prep on Sunday nights. On Sunday nights, People are posting photos in the group of all, everything they meal prep for the week. Hey, I've made a bunch of potatoes for the week. I've made chickpea salad for the week. I've made, you know, I've got a bunch of broccoli all steamed for the week. Here's what I'm going to, like, they're planning. 
Yeah, I mean, I think something that we've learned and we teach is that preparation is key. You have to get information. You have to prepare yourself for success. You can't just uh, uh, snap your fingers and hope that tomorrow everything's going to be perfect. Now, you're standing in this gorgeous kitchen that you renovated. Please tell us about that. When we first started the channel, right, we had a house of like seven years. We had a mid-century modern. It was a project that we were just working on over seven years, and it took a long time. And I, but I loved that kitchen, but it was a really small house. And uh, I had a beautiful booth in it that, again, that I had built, and uh, I'm very handy. So, you know, the market was really high. We sold that. We moved into a condo for a while. And then last, last October, this weekend coming up will be our year that we moved in, we found this house. And uh, we were looking at brand new houses. Uh, you know, there are smaller homes with smaller yards, like, you know, not anything expensive, right? Um, I mean, I am a stay-at-home dad. You know what I mean? Let's be realistic. So, but we're looking at newer kind of, detached condo houses and Tim was talking about oh we can buy this place and rip out this kitchen and put our own kitchen in and I was like wait wait are we talking about buying a brand new house and ripping the kitchen out he's like well yeah the builder kitchen will cost you know we'd have to pay so much and I'm like oh no no we're gonna buy something that that's pretty much done but needs a new kitchen right because that's crazy right and it's like a lot less so that's what we did I found this place it's in a gated community it's only like 30 homes it's very like I don't know it, it's really nice and we decided that we were going to rip out this kitchen and we were going to put in a new kitchen. And this is our fourth kitchen built, right? So we, and I decided that, you know, we had the YouTube channel and I decided that I was going to make a DIY video on this, okay. right? And I was going to uh, build this kitchen on the camera. So I did. And I set the camera and I did this whole thing and it took six weeks from start to finish. And other than the countertops, I did the whole thing, right? And the odd part that you don't know about this whole beautiful kitchen I built behind me, that's the video that got my channel monetized. That video changed everything. Wow. I noticed it has thousands of views. And I even wonder, did you expect to have that sort of reaction? Because you've been investing all this time making videos, and then you renovate the kitchen, and then boom. Yeah, it's so strange because it's got like almost 200,000 views, right? So I watched my YouTube hours immediately start climbing every day. Like I'm not pushing this video. It's not new. It's over. It's, it came out in, I don't know, April or whatever. Every day people comment on this video. Like where are they? It's still being suggested. Um, and here I am like making, you know, like cash and cheese trying to get, you know, trying to get famous. And it's, the, it's DIY. Who knew? Right. So uh, I had no idea that was going to happen. And it immediately took me into a place where YouTube was now suggesting my videos, not just my DIY videos, but all my videos. Um, I think it's kind of one of the reasons that plant-based dads just kind of started taking off, right? And people are like, wow, you, you know, you've been successful. It's an overnight hit. And I'm like, no, I, my channel's like two years old. Like, it's not overnight. But that kitchen changed everything. So, and I'll get people going, hey, I came over for your kitchen video. I'm a vegan too, right? And I was like, great. So it's quite a mix, but no, I, I had no idea that was going to happen. You know, you've developed such a nice group of, of uh, people that are supporting, supporting each other. Can you tell our listeners again how they can learn more about you and how they can join your support group? Absolutely. So on, on YouTube, where the video channel is called Plant Based Dads, it's uh, vegan cooking, uh, try out products, uh, baking, uh, a lot of the stock solution stuff on Facebook. Right? We have, there's the Facebook page, Plant-Based Dads. That's just a kind of a public presence. But we have a group. And the group is just called, it's at facebook.com slash plant-based dads. 
The group is called Plant-Based Ads Start Solution Enthusiasts. Wow. Carolina Mueller from the Houston area, uh, who is a Food for Life instructor, a Plant Pure Pod leader, and she'll tell us her story of overcoming a lifetime struggle with food, experiencing tremendous weight loss, and now helping others create change in their own lives. She has a PhD in chemistry. Now, this podcast is a little different because she will give us a food demo. So welcome, Carolina. Thank you, Maya. I'm so happy to be with you. I remember I might have been four years old, like climbing up to the kitchen counter to reach the oat flakes and the sugar. And I would make myself an extra bowl of uh, oat, rolled oats, sugar and milk with you know, four or five years old. I was always hungry. I was like... You know, food was a little recommended in my family. So I was always like looking for extra food, like all my life. It never stopped. Any idea what was driving you to eat so much? I wonder if something had really changed in my, or maybe I never had a particularly good gut microbiome. And then over the surgery with, you know, you have to be um, without food for some time. You get more antibiotics. We already, because I was sickly, lots of infection and it continued, that I got lots of antibiotics, that there was something going on with my gut microbiome and it shifted it this way. Did that continue on through most of your life? Yeah, it did. So when I was 18, I did a, a fasting health spa. It was actually mostly juice fasting. I got a glass of carrot juice and a, and a big cup of vegetable broth every day. Mm -hmm. and I lost weight and I was like the weight I really would like to be for the first time in my you know after my teenage or like as long as I can remember it didn't last very long it was a very traumatic time in my family my mother was diagnosed with cancer I sort of totally spiraled out I would gain the weight back and twice as much and then I would do some fasting again and I would lose and it just went up and down and up and down the last time I had one of those weight losses was when I came to the U.S. when I was 20 years old. It was very exciting here. I ate fairly healthy with lots of salads and I lost the weight. But then when I came back for grad school, like depression hit again and I gained all the weight back. At one point, it ballooned up to 240 pounds. And I pretty much settled between 200 and 220 pounds. How did you begin to discover that you can use food as medicine? So I had inklings before, like when I was 13, my family actually did a lot of changes in food. We ate a lot more raw food, we ate raw vegetables, we would grind our own flour for breakfast, we would have like coarsely shredded, freshly coarse shredded uh, grains in the morning. We did all that, but you know, then when my mom died, we also ate, more meat again and even before we still ate cured meat we ate processed meat because it's just so german my mom died of colon cancer when i came here i um a few years later i found permaculture and the permaculturists that i was hanging out with they were vegetarian so very soon i became a vegetarian but being me i of course after brief period of increased health, I ate more cheese and more ice cream and it just continued in the same. And even when I found 
veganism and became a vegan a few years later, I did the same thing again. That addiction-like behavior is so strong. But then in 2011, my supervisor had a triple bypass surgery and I was like, I need to do something for myself. I want to show it for him, to him. I'm always motivated by helping more than helping myself. That's when I followed the advice that friends had given me a long time ago to check out Dr. John McDougall. First year when I lost the weight and I lost uh, about 70 pounds, I noticed uh, that if I had one meal a week eating out with friends that contained oil, I wouldn't lose any weight. And in other weeks, I would often lose two pounds a week. So that was quite a motivator for me to avoid the oil. Were you okay in transitioning to eating those starchy foods initially? Because they are satisfying. Yeah, I I had always eaten those. And so I just, what I focused on was no more of the processed vegan sausages, no more vegan butter. That was actually another one. And I got used to eating my vegetables without the butter. And... uh, then I would focus on those filling starchy vegetables and and whole grains, whole intact grains. At that time, I did not do too much of the flour stuff. Um, I might have occasionally pasta, but I I stopped eating bread because bread is very calorie dense too. You're now in a position where you're actually helping people. You're involved in a plant pure pod and you're also a food for life instructor. So how did you even get to that point? I think it's quite a common phenomenon that people who have like such a shift in awareness that they want the whole world to know about it. And my friends were quite getting fed up with me. So I was like, okay, I need to find an audience that is free to walk away from me. And so I was looking for some time what to do. And eventually I found uh, the program by the Physicians Committee, that's the Food for Life program where you're trained to be a cooking instructor. And there's a support structure there, there is a curriculum and there's all kinds of support to actually put these classes on. And if there are questions, I can email like a nutritionist or a doctor and there's just that back support for me. I'm a chemist, I know a lot, but I'm not a medical professional. That really makes a difference. Yeah, and it surprises me. I didn't know you had a PhD. So you could go by Dr. Mueller if you wanted to, right? (laughs) Yeah, I I could. And for me, it's always in this setting particular, if I say I'm Dr. Carolina Mueller, people think I'm a medical doctor and I'm not. Yeah, last year when we saw each other there and, and we marched in white coats to the Capitol to basically kind of in a non-aggressive way, say, you know, ditch the dairy, do away with meat. And it felt it was my first time going, it felt so wonderful to be part of such a large movement, a wonderful organization like PCRM, Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, and then you were there. So that was like a big plus. (laughs) But it's just been wonderful to be part of this. And then I know even at that conference, the Food for Life instructors kind of have their own little get together as well, right? That time we had a special day for us. It was really wonderful. We had a training in how to deal with getting the word out. That, that was the, the big part last year with Stephanie Red Cross from Vegan Mainstream. All right. So Carolina is in her kitchen. Great. 
So it's very simple. We have a nice dish where everything goes in and I, the cucumber is uh, a little thick in the center, so I cut it in half so the pieces are more easily manageable. I can also have a look on the inside. Um, I left this just a touch long, but the seeds are still soft. There was a time before where I would give away cucumbers right, left and center. So this has been a uh, pretty hot summer, at least from my perspective. Has that affected your garden at all or is it um, normal to you? I think it was still pretty normal. And in uh, the summer, it gets so hot that tomatoes won't set, uh, cucumbers won't set. I think even peppers suffer a little bit. You still had eggplants and you had a few cooler days. So as soon as the rain came and it got cooler, we got some beans again. We got the cucumbers again. And, um, but yeah, eggplants were still coming out. In fact, I have like three bags of eggplants in the fridge. So we're exploring all our eggplant dishes. The, from Baba Ganoush to someone reminded me of, uh, I think, Ikri, the uh, Russian. Oh. Um, dish where you roast the eggplant just like for baba ganoush but then instead of mixing it with tahini and lemon juice you mix it with a tomato paste and uh, sauteed onions mm -hmm. so you're layer layering your dish with the cucumber yeah so i'm just layering them in the, the neater you are the the more you get in without wasting too much space i'm a little impatient right now of course so I'm going to include this portion in the actual audio podcast so that if people want to listen in, they can kind of have an idea of what you were preparing. But you just sliced one cucumber and half of red onion, and you're layering one on top of the other. There we go. Then keep going. Yeah, this will be good, like, after one day. And the nice thing is uh, raw onion can be really too much for many people. But once they were in vinegar for some time, they are not as biting for the stomach and much more digestible. Mm -hmm. And it's also the reason why I use red onions because they are a little milder or we might use a sweet on the sweet onion. Mm -hmm. wow. Okay, so now I will add some yellow mustard seeds. And you see how well measured out this is. Mm. Yummy. And today I will add some dill weed. Definitely not the time for dill here, it's too hot. It's a very uh, traditional combination, cucumbers, especially pickles. We really like the neutral flavor of rice vinegar. Now I realize that I ran out of rice vinegar. We have a pantry where we keep everything. But what I do is I mix one part rice vinegar and two parts of water. That way it's not too vinegary and then you cover everything with vinegar. You can shake it up a bit so everything gets covered. Leave it in the fridge for the next day and then it's good to eat and will be good for you. Today I have the lovely Stephanie Dreyer and uh, she's a plant-based lifestyle expert. She's also a free uh, freelance writer and a former marketing executive. She's the author of two children's books, Not a Nugget and then also Not a Purse, which I thought were just amazing titles. And she's really on a mission to get families to eat healthier. So welcome. 
Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. My decision to go vegan was overnight. Um, I was nursing my third child at the time who had just um, turned one and he was just starting um, to wean. And I was reading The Kind Diet by Alicia Silverstone. I was vegetarian for five years, um, all through my first and almost my full second pregnancy my sec with my second daughter. And then at about eight months, I started craving meat and I went vegan for the animals. That was my, all the, the ethics of that and um, was strongly connected to the animals. For some reason, I don't know why, I had this craving for meat my eighth month of pre my second pregnancy and I gave into it and I continued to eat meat for about three years until this, I was telling I was nursing my, my son. And as I was reading The Kind Diet, if anybody has read that, you'll know all the compelling information that is in there about all the factory farming, especially with, um, with relations to um, milk production. And I, I had become so disconnected to all that information. For some reason, I, I just needed a reminder. I needed Alicia to spell it out for me. And as I was nursing my son, uh, it became so clear that I was like mama cow. And how could I, how, how could I even think of drinking milk? And so it was that instantaneous. Overnight, I went vegan. My kids and my husband are like, we're on vacation. I remember we were like, what? Mom doesn't want, you know, pizza tonight? Like, what's going on? So that's kind of, I never looked back. Everyone thought it was going to be a phase. And here I am 10 plus years later, and it's the best decision I made ever. So that was a journey. Um, of course, immediately I was just like, everybody's going to hear this information and be so compelled and just, of course, agree with me. Mm -hmm. And my husband, although he completely respected and admired the, the choice, still to this day says he thinks it's the best way that everyone should eat. He just didn't have... He wasn't ready to take the journey. He didn't have the, he thinks it's willpower. I don't know. I don't think it's willpower to give up the food. So what happened was there was a little bit of a battle at the beginning. And of course, me trying to figure it out. Remember, this is 10 plus years ago. So I was the only one in my family, the only one in my social circle. There was not, it was not as big of a thing as it is now where it's, you know, widely known. You can go to restaurants, there's vegan menus, you know, back then it was, People thought you were a little odd and, you know, I was the butt of all the jokes and it, you know, it was a kind of a, a lonely time and we, we had to find our footing at first. I, you know, I threw out everything that was animal based in my fridge, my pantry, I just threw it out and I was like forcing them to go vegan with me. And that definitely was not the way I say if my kids were not born before I went vegan, I would have insisted that we raise them vegan. But because I had a six year old, a three year old, and then I had this one year old, Mm -hmm. One-year-old was easy because he wasn't eating, you know, he wasn't eating yet. Um, but the six and the three-year-old, you know, and I, they were, you know, eating already these foods. And then my husband was eating these foods. So it was, we had to navigate, you know, how do we say mom's right or dad's right? Or we, you know, we had to be modeling compromise and some ground rules about how we respect each other's choices. And so what I learned through a lot of trial and tribulation was, to have compassion for my family and myself. And we kind of navigated our way through that. Mm -hmm. One thing we agreed on right away was no cow's milk. So my son never, when he weaned, he never had cow's milk. And my kids stopped drinking cow's milk. I was already a really um, avid and enthusiastic home cook and loved to cook meals. And so it was kind of an adventure for me to learn how to veganize some of our favorites and how to cook vegan, really. 
And that was as that kind of flow became more, um, you know, I'd say it took me about six months to a year to kind of really get into a new routine. Um, then our family, we, it became vegan at home. So basically where I do all the cooking and shopping. So it's kind of easy where I am the, I'm the cook, but, um, if they want meat, they have to cook it or prepare it, which honestly doesn't happen that often. And my daughter, my oldest daughter, who's now 16, she went vegetarian on her own about three and a half years ago. So, you know, it might actually be coming on four years in November. Wow. And I think that that was because of my example of not forcing. She came to that, um, you know, decision on her own and she still has a hard time giving up cheese. That's the only reason she's not um, vegan. And then my son, who, you know, is 11, since the time he was like three, four, five, he was asking the questions and being conscious of like, so where does this uh, bacon come from? Where does, you know, and so what I've kind of taught them is to be compassionate about where they're getting their food and making a conscious choice. Like if they're going to eat that, understand where it's coming from. Mm -hmm. And to my husband's credit, he primarily eats vegan. He chooses a vegan hamburger when we go out. So he's really changed his diet too. So um, I just with, you know, everyone's family is different, but Mm -hmm. when my family, I, I learned very quickly forcing them to come along with me on the journey was not going to be successful. And it has become a very, um, we have a very loving, healthy relationship around food now, which is nice to see and supportive of each other's decisions. (laughs) It's so nice to hear that you're comfortable talking about being in an Omni family and still being able to create a support group. Your goal is to get families to cook more healthy foods in their kitchen. So my whole mission message is to get families to meal plan. Um, because I feel like if you don't plan for it, like anything, it doesn't happen, right? If you don't plan for it, it doesn't happen. Your exercise, your appointments, your work, whatever, your any goal you have. So really, I, I try on my personal platform is to help families um, meal plan and break it down so it's easy. And then I launched Batch Cooking Club, my weekly meal prep membership in January, just very recently, to make it even easier by helping organize meal prep for everyone. So Basically, what happened is I noticed I, as I was, you know, transitioning to vegan and cooking, you know, at first cooking two different meals and sometimes three with picky tallers and was like, this is not the way to do it. Um, I came upon this whole process that I call batch cooking, which isn't um, unique in that lots of people batch cook, but I think my approach to it is unique in that I'm not somebody who gets into the kitchen and talking about batching five hours, all your meals for the week. And I enjoy cooking. So what I want is I just want to make it so when I go into the kitchen to make dinners or pack lunches or whatever, when I'm in the kitchen, I don't want to spend an hour. I want to spend 30-ish minutes and I want to enjoy my time in there. I don't want to have to think about what's for dinner. I want it to be all thought out and done for me. So the way I approach meal prep and batch cooking is that I do my meal plan and then I look at the meal plan and identify recipes or components of the recipes that can be prepped in advance. So if, for example, I'm doing um, a stir fry, can I batch that rice in advance? If I'm doing tacos and I have a meeting that night and it's I have 10 minutes to get dinner on the table, do I batch cook the filling ahead of time so all I have to do is heat that up in the tortillas or whatever? So I, I look at all of that and try to be very methodical about 
what and and very um, specific about what I am going to meal prep. So then when I get in the kitchen on Sunday for my batch cook Sunday, I would batch about five, maybe seven things at the most because I'm a meal plan warrior, but I always try to recommend no more <laughs> than five things. And usually it's a salad dressing, a filling, maybe some grains, some roasted vegetables, a sauce, maybe for pasta, a couple things. They're going to simplify my dinners and also make lunches really quick to get on the table. You know, I try to make it manageable for a busy working person. And also, you know, you might want to add in your own recipes and some people want to make more and have leftovers, you know, however they want to do it. We're on social media at Batch Cooking Club on Instagram and Facebook. Yeah. And so I promote it there. And then also on Veeg Mama, we, I, I talk and do a lot of things over there as well to share the recipes. We, we post recipes over on our blog mm-hmm. weekly at batchcookingclub.com. Yeah. Today's bonus episode will include four of my favorite doctors in Texas. You will hear commonalities that they share as physicians. They all initially lack formal training in nutrition. When they learned about the power of the plant-based foods, they not only adopted the diet for themselves, but they also began to teach their patients that plant-based foods can prevent, halt, and even in some cases reverse disease. They are all now trained in lifestyle medicine and are board certified by the American Board of Lifestyle Medicine. Okay, so let's start with Drs. Munish and Bandana Chawla from Houston, Texas. Dr. Bandana Chawla is a board certified physician in internal medicine and lifestyle medicine. She has been practicing as an internist in the Houston area for over 20 years. And over the years, she has incorporated the tenets of lifestyle medicine into her practice and has seen her patients lose weight, improve their diabetes, and several other health conditions. Dr. Munish Chawla is a board-certified physician in diagnostic radiology and lifestyle medicine. A longtime practitioner of meditation and yoga, he adopted a plant-based lifestyle in 2013. Upon becoming aware of the research-proven health benefits and the evidence-based approach lifestyle medicine uses to treat and reverse chronic diseases, he became certified in this new and exciting specialty. Doctors Munish and Bandana Chawla created their lifestyle medicine docs practice, which focuses on eating the right foods, being fit, reducing stress, and connecting more to achieve holistic wellness. They also founded the Peaceful Planet Foundation 501c3 nonprofit, which fosters peace, health, and wellness in Houston and the surrounding communities. Let's hear from the doctors. So we just moved in here. It's been over a month now. We moved here because I've been practicing traditional um, internal medicine for a while, about 20 years. And more and more, I've been talking to patients about lifestyle medicine as well, making some goals and plans for the pillars of lifestyle medicine, which is, of course, nutrition, exercise, stress management, sleep, avoidance of risky behaviors like alcohol and um, tobacco and drug use and um, healthy relationships. What I was realizing is many of my patients were starting to say that, Doc, I get the why, it's the how that's mm-hmm. really hard. Yep. So then we basically said, okay, we need to help them with the how then. And that's why this lifestyle medicine clinic came into being. And you want to tell what the lifestyle medicine clinic sure, has? Sure. So I'll give you a little bit of my background. I'm a board-certified radiologist and have been practicing radiology for over 20 years. But, you know, we take walks in the evening. 
And she would be telling me all these patients that, you know, she's switched over to a plant-based diet. They're, you know, getting rid of their diabetes medicine. They're, you know, doing so much better losing weight without even trying. And I'm, you know, getting encouraged. So I said, you know, I want to be part of this uh, movement also. So we were both kind of studying for lifestyle medicine uh, board exams. Actually, she started studying, and I'm reading the material too because I'm interested in it. So I said, you know, I can do this. So we had no plans of doing anything at this point. So I was going to take the uh, lifestyle medicine board examination. If you're an MD or PhD or nutrition or dietitian, you can get the added certification. So once we got the certification, like, like now what do we do? So Vandana, you know, wants to move further. She's got her uh, medical clinic. She's got interested patients who get the reason, you know, why do we need to, you know, change our diet, change our lifestyle, incorporate other healthful behaviors. But they're having trouble with how to get there. Mm -hmm. So this is when we kind of start talking about the new clinic. And so, long story short, I am transitioning out of radiology, and I'll be in the new space with her doing this lifestyle clinic. And in our space, uh, we have a wonderful area. It's a small space where we can do yoga classes, meditation classes, screenings for movies. We have a small kitchen. We can do cooking demos, uh, group potlucks, group discussion, you know, group support sessions. So we wanted to create the space to have really a community come and learn from each other, and we provide some tools and guidance. Mm -hmm. So everybody grows in this, you know, healthful, you know, wonderful, you know, behavior that everybody gets healthy together. Mm -hmm. So you might say then that uh, the the way you design the clinic is it's it's able to address the lifestyle medicine concepts more fully than a traditional internal medicine practice. Absolutely. One, it provides the community because it really does help to have other people who are on the same path with us. really helps to see other patients who are also trying to eat this way, who are also trying to improve their health. One of my patients said it really helps to have people who are ahead of us on this path that we can look up to. Yeah, for guidance. And sure. also mm -hmm. helps to have people behind us who are looking up to us who we are trying to, so we try to do better because we know they're looking up to mm -hmm. us, right? Mm -hmm. So we are not, we're trying not to let them down. Forming that community is something that we really want in Lifestyle a Medicine Clinic. And the other thing, like I said, is the how. Mm -hmm. The how that's so hard for people. So now they can come to cooking classes and learn the how of cooking and how to make these healthy foods themselves because so many people in the society have actually never cooked. They've always picked up fast food and eaten out. Now they can learn the how of meditation, the how of yoga, and, and all of that stuff. So I had been, you know, you call it midlife crisis or call it, you know, wanting to do something else. I wanted to go to a meditation course and I finally picked out one, you know, after doing some research in Google that this is the one I want to go to. So this was a 10-day silent retreat. Wow. And I told this to my wife. And, you know, at this time, our kids are 9 and 10. Or... And I said, no, not yet. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> not going out because 10 days, I can't even call him if I have an issue. Because he's not going to talk to you. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> so this Can is... you text on a silent retreat? You, you no. put away your phone in a locker. Oh, wow. You right. get it 10 days later. <laughs> yes. So you have to put away all communication with the outside world. You can't even bring any book with you. Wow. So the following year, in August of 2012, I got a chance to go. So, you know, at that time, I didn't think much of it. I just wanted something to maybe, you know, help with 
stress, maybe anxiety, just kind of feeling a little bit better. Before I went to the retreat, I was an omnivore. I was eating everything. I had stopped eating beef, but I was still eating fish and chicken. But when I came back from the retreat, something clicked. And one of the things they said is everything that we respond to in our world is temporary sensations. So why do we want to harm another living creature for you know, just the temporary sensation of it tasting good? And it's literally, it's less than a second that the food is on your tongue, right. that you actually taste it. Yeah. And so just something just clicked. And when I came back from this retreat, I had you know, become vegetarian. But I didn't tell her. You know, sometimes you get real excited. You're kind of you know, thinking, okay, this is the new me. Then life happens, and mm-hmm. you kind of revert back to your old habits. So she brought it up with me. says, I'm noticing <laughs> that you didn't get that, that I told her. I'm not going to eat that way again. So I became vegetarian in August of 2012. And then we started doing research that if we're really doing this for compassion, that there's more cruelty in the dairy industry than there is in the livestock or meat industry. Mm-hmm. So if we're really doing this from a non-harming, non-violent standpoint, we need to go all the way. So he became vegetarian in August, and then the universe just kept sending me vegan and plant-based patients. Oh, really? And at first, kind of ignored it, said, good for you. <laughs> you know, nobody wants to change. Mm-hmm. Uh, good that your diabetes is better, and good mm-hmm. that you're off your asthma inhalers. Well, I don't have those problems anyways, right? So I don't need to do anything about it. Um, but it just kept happening. Um, and he was going through um, reflections as well, and he had made some kind of a comment saying that all these years, if you've been vegetarian for non-violence and compassion reasons, shouldn't, be, shouldn't you be a vegan instead? <laughs> and then I was like, oh yeah, when the kids go off to college, maybe I'll become a vegan then. But since the patients started coming, they started educating me. Um, finally, I started asking them. First, I wasn't even ready to ask them, what made you go vegan, right? Mm-hmm. Because I wasn't ready. So when I started getting curious and started asking them, they started telling me about the ethical aspects, the health aspects, and the environmental aspects. And then we started doing our own research. Mm-hmm. And then we said, okay, January 1st, let's try. Let's try transitioning towards a vegan diet. Um, it wasn't hard. We were feeling better. We were doing the 21-day kickstart and other things and getting emails every day about stuff and then still finding out even more stuff about dairy and other things to where we both kind of said, let's not wait that long. I don't want to wait till May. So February 1st, 2013 is our official vegan anniversary. Oh, right. So we celebrate our marriage anniversary and our vegan anniversary. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Congratulations. Well, that's great. Thank you. you. I'll tell you the three things that improved for me. uh My migraines went away. Wow. Um, I have not had a migraine since I've been vegan. Um, two, my menstrual cramps went away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, three, my allergies got better and I got, got off of nasal spray. I still have to take Zyrtec. They didn't get all the way better. So I still take my Zyrtec at bedtime, but I no longer take Flonase nasal spray that I had had to take for a decade. Mm-hmm. I was able to get off of that. And actually, my fibrocystic disease of breast got better as well. Yeah. Because so much of this is hormonally exactly. related. Exactly. And I didn't know it was hormonally right. and related. And a lot of hormones in the milk and dairy mm-hmm. yeah. things. Absolutely. Right. Um, my skin. Mm-hmm. My skin cleared up. I've had this issue with rosacea for yeah. a long time. Wow. And, and that is no longer an issue. And so, 
in terms of, you know, I didn't feel a great big change going from a, you know, mostly vegetarian, occasional fish mm -hmm. and chicken diet to a vegetarian diet or even to a vegan diet. Mm -hmm. But when we switched from, from that sort of eating pattern to a whole foods eating diet, I stopped having headaches. My allergies haven't gotten all the way better, but they've gotten significantly better. Okay, so let's move on to Dr. Rizwan Bukhari. Now, he has been practicing vascular surgery for over 20 years. His primary hospital is Baylor Sunnyvale, where he formerly was the chief of surgery. Currently, he serves on the board of directors and board of managers and is chief of staff. He's the owner of the North Texas Vascular Center, where he offers diagnostic services and minimally invasive outpatient procedures, largely related to amputation prevention and limb salvage. Dr. Riz will explain the difference between a cardiologist and a vascular surgeon. He now offers nutrition counseling, and he tells us about his personal journey towards becoming plant-based. What is a vascular surgeon? Well, a vascular surgeon is a, uh, a surgeon who operates on the blood vessels of the body, uh, everywhere except the heart and in the brain. So typically, it's uh, carotid artery operations or treatments, uh, the, the aorta, the uh, iliac vessels in the pelvis, the leg blood vessels, and for, for different reasons. Uh, and, and, but the vascular surgeon doesn't just operate on them. He might, might do medical management or observation of problems with these arteries. Atherosclerosis is one of the leading causes of death in the United States. Atherosclerosis of the heart is called cardiovascular disease. And so I treat that same atherosclerosis. If the plaque builds up in the arteries that supply different parts of the body, uh, then get blocked off and those parts of the body then have problems. And so by treating them, I try to improve the situation. Mm -hmm. A treatment might be an operation. Um, it might be a stent or an angioplasty, or it might be medical therapy and, and observation. By the time I get somebody sent to me, they have very advanced problems. They've either got gangrene or they've got, a, uh, or they might have had some strokes uh, or, or they've got severe symptomatic disease of the legs, like pain at rest or pain when they walk. These patients are typically uh, in their late 50s, 60s, and 70s. Interestingly, I've, I've seen a trend over the 20 years I've been in practice where the patients are starting to become a little bit younger. And, and that's a sign that this uh, disease, atherosclerosis, is uh, starting at an earlier age and progressing more rapidly. Therefore, we're seeing it in younger people. How is it that this disease is seen at that age? The main reason is our American diet what we call the standard American or Western diet. As it's gotten worse, according to many people's estimates, it's causing more and more problems with, uh, with atherosclerosis. The, the West, standard Western diet is high in fat, high in processed foods, uh, and very low in the healthy foods. So therefore, these processed foods and oils and cholesterol in our diet are leading to atherosclerosis in general and more advanced atherosclerosis in younger people now. What makes you different than a cardiologist? A cardiologist is someone who works on the heart. There are two specialists who work on the heart, the cardiologist and the cardiac surgeon. One primarily does the medical and interventional treatments, and the other one, the surgeon, does the surgical treatments. Whereas as a vascular surgeon, I do both the medical and interventional treatments and the surgical treatments of the arteries of the rest of the body. It's a highly specialized craft in many ways, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's so special that many people don't even know about it. Uh, you know, the general public doesn't. Uh, I mean, most, most physicians do, and that's how I get you know, patients sent to me when they recognize that there's a problem. What do you tell your patients that are younger than 
the typical age group that you treat? What do you say to them? Well, the, the main message I get to them is to eat better. Most atherosclerotic disease is lifestyle and nutrition related. Uh, some of it is related to tobacco, uh, but the, uh, in my opinion, tobacco is just one risk factor. Interestingly enough, uh, every year since 1964, which is when the Surgeon General issued a warning and put a warning on the, on the package of cigarettes about the dangers of cigarette smoking, the incidence of smoking has gone down every year since 1964. So we have the lowest incidence of smoking in the United States since 1964. But despite that, the incidence of atherosclerosis is still rising. Mm. So when people uh, blame smoking as the main cause of atherosclerosis, that's not correct. Mm. I think the main cause of atherosclerosis is our standard American diet, which has gotten worse over the last 50 years. Here as a vascular surgeon, you see the side effects or the consequences of eating a standard American diet. And, um, and at the same time, you see the solution, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I feel very alone because uh, I, I, although I've heard that there might be one or two other vascular surgeons who are plant-based, I've never met one or, or spoken to one. When I went plant-based, then I thought, of course, I have a duty to educate my patients about it as well. Why would I keep it from them? Talking to my patients about their nutrition is a part of I talk about risk factors to all my patients. And so nutrition is typically a risk factor. Not only do I tell them to uh, stop smoking, but I do lifestyle and risk factor management. And part of that is, is nutritional counseling. Finally, let's meet Dr. Nancy Erickson. She's currently an associate professor in maternal fetal medicine at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. During our conversation, Dr. Erickson shared with us the common ailments and conditions that she sees in her patients. Her goal is to provide lifestyle medicine counseling to help her patients improve their conditions. And she also shares with us her personal story of improving her menopausal symptoms through a plant-based diet. Finally, Dr. Erickson will be one of the speakers at the annual American College of Lifestyle Medicine Lifestyle Conference. So make sure to listen to the full podcast with her. But I look at women's health in a bigger picture. Mm-hmm. which is different than most OBGYNs because most OBGYNs hone in on, you know, breast and pelvis. And I look at it from, okay, the number one disease that OBGYNs see is obesity. And from there, women are most likely to die from heart disease, just as are men. And number two is cancer. So let's talk about what you specialize in as an OBGYN. What I do is I specialize in pregnancy, in fact, high-risk pregnancies. So I see patients, I do diagnostic ultrasound, amniocentesis, prenatal diagnosis, and consultations, both outpatient, inpatient, um, in the Texas Medical Center. For women who have complications, it could range anywhere from, you know, the garden variety, hypertension, diabetes, mm-hmm. um, preterm labor, premature rupture of membranes, to people with congenital heart disease, strokes heart attacks, all kinds of complications that occur just during pregnancy. And out of those, what are the most common problems that you see? So I get a lot of consultations um, for uh, obesity. I get a lot for high blood pressure and diabetes. Those are the most common ones. In fact, obesity is the most common problem or disease that OBGYN see currently. I incorporate lifestyle uh, counseling into those consultations because Studies have shown that if you change your lifestyle, you can reverse those diseases such as obesity, high blood pressure, diabetes, risk for coronary artery disease, and such. Mm -hmm. And what are some of those lifestyle modifications that you recommend to your patients who may have, like you said, obesity or high blood pressure, diabetes? 
Well, I, I try and keep it simple. And I just tell them, I said, pregnancy is going to make you tired. And the thing that's going to help you with that is fiber and plants. So if you stress eating plants, you're going to find that you're going to have more energy because you're going to get not only the calories, you're going to get all the phytonutrients and antioxidants, which um, help boost your metabolism and increase your energy. Mm -hmm. um, and it can also decrease the risk for complications uh, during the pregnancy, and it can decrease the uh, excessive weight gain. There are, there are uh, recommendations about how much weight women should gain based on what their BMI is. And most women, even if they have a normal BMI, typically gain too much weight. And so when possible, if they're open, I discuss um, moving towards a whole food plant-based diet. I actually found it interesting that you said in your recent lecture that the diet a mother consumes during her pregnancy actually has been shown to influence gene expression in her unborn child. That's correct. So I came across some very interesting research. One uh, was just, well, the study involved looking at the miscarriages of women and looking at the main artery that comes out of the heart, which is called the aorta. And they looked, they correlated um, fatty streaks in the aorta with women who ate the most cholesterol, which is exclusively found in animal products such as meat, dairy, eggs, fish, that kind of thing. Before that, they thought that fatty streaks only started happening during childhood or late teenage years. And now we're finding that what you eat during your pregnancy actually can cause the, the beginnings of atherosclerosis, which is hardening of the arteries, even mm -hmm. as a fetus. And then also the standard American diet, especially processed foods and things like that, um, alter the genes, which this is a field called epigenetics, which studies the environmental impact of uh, what we eat, toxins we're exposed to, et cetera, and the impact on the expression of our genes. In other words, the food we eat can either turn on or turn off genes, and based on that, can determine how that future health of the baby. So they've done studies on women uh, who are obese. They're not on a special diet. They're just eating the standard American diet, and they can show that uh, just by being obese and eating the typical American foods, that they increase the risk for their child um, having obesity later in life, having metabolic syndrome, diabetes, and even heart disease. In one study, they showed that women who are high, had high blood pressure um, increased the risk for their adult children at age 40 having high blood pressure. Wow. And some of this, you know, some people might say, well, that's because probably they're just feeding their kids the same thing they're eating. So therefore, of course, they're going to have increased risk for this. What about the onset of gestational diabetes and preeclampsia during pregnancy? Obese women have a much higher risk for both gestational diabetes and preeclampsia, okay. um, both of which, um, more, more so preeclampsia, but occurs early in the pregnancy, may lead to a preterm delivery. Obese women, they have a lot of different complications. One is an increased risk for birth defects, especially congenital heart defects. And have an increased risk for having a large baby, which might increase their risk for having a cesarean delivery. Mm -hmm. And women with a BMI over 40 have an increased risk for stillbirth. So we do more monitoring late in the third trimester for those women. And mm -hmm. some of them are shocked to hear that, that their baby could die just because they're obese. And also women who get gestational diabetes have about a 50% chance of getting diabetes in between pregnancies or type two diabetes Oh, wow. On the order of about 50% within the next five years. So one of the things I try and share with them is that one is you need to be tested again for diabetes. And um, if, 
if you bring your weight down in between pregnancies, you can lower your risk for those happening in the subsequent pregnancy. Dr. Erickson, how did you begin to incorporate nutrition counseling for your patients? Well, I started, this is actually my own personal journey. About 10 years ago, I started looking into what is the optimal diet. As I was approaching menopause, I wanted to see what could I take to help lower my risk for a lot of problems. I had a mother who had breast cancer and Anne had breast cancer. Mm -hmm. so that was a concern. But I also knew from recent literature that heart uh, hormonal replacement therapy actually increases your risk for breast cancer. And prior to that study coming out, I planned on taking it when I went through menopause to lower some of the symptoms. I came across the movie Forks Over Knives. I watched it. And because of all the study I'd done up to then, it just kind of made perfect sense. The science backed up what I was already suspecting, which is plants are healthy mm -hmm. and actually prevent and reverse um, many diseases. So I had actually just gone through menopause. I was having horrible hot flushes. Within a week, I went whole food plant-based. Within two weeks of me doing so, all my hot flushes went away. Wow. It's interesting because the, the studies show that hot flushes last for an average of 10 years. And I knew that. And I was like, there's no way I could take this for 10 years. And so I found it to be very powerful. And uh, as a result, I've wanted to share that with my patients. Welcome, everyone. My name is Rizwan Bukhari. I'm a vascular surgeon in the Dallas area, and I practice a plant-based lifestyle. I also teach plant-based nutrition to my patients as a part of their lifestyle modification. And my wife, Maya, and I also teach plant-based nutrition to the community and anyone else who is willing to listen. So let's get started. Today, I'm going to talk about cardiovascular disease and nutrition and the tremendous impact that nutrition has on the development, treatment, and prevention of cardiovascular disease. Before we get started, let me share a little bit about my personal story of how I became whole food plant-based. Uh, many people uh, might think it's unusual that a vascular surgeon uh, is uh, sharing this message with people. And at the, in the beginning, I thought so too, because I'm a uh, proceduralist and a surgeon who treats this disease, and why would I be sitting here preaching about how to prevent it? Now, as I've uh, become very involved in this, uh, the more and more I learn, I think it's actually a shame that I am the only vascular surgeon that I know of in the country that is trying to uh, teach people how not to get cardiovascular disease. So. Uh, my story starts with the fact that all my life I have been very interested in my own personal health. Throughout my lifetime, uh, ever since I was a kid, I would uh, work out, I would run. Throughout much of my life, I have had a personal trainer. Uh, in my uh, mid-40s, I started uh, doing this uh, exercise program called P90X uh, by a guy named Tony Horton. Uh, many of you may have heard of this. Uh, and uh, one of the things that I learned from that program uh, was that uh, nutrition was an extremely important uh, aspect of uh, uh, physical conditioning uh, and uh, uh, he used to preach that nutrition was 80% of the game. So at that point I stopped focusing just 100% on exercise and began to realize that uh, I needed to work on nutrition. And at that time I started to eat a high carb, low fat diet, but I was uh, still focused on utilizing animal products uh, uh, within my diet as mainly as a source of protein. At this point after having been on this program for several years and I was in great physical shape, there were some things that were uh, bothering me. Uh, my cholesterol was high, my triglycerides were high, I was borderline hypertensive, and my blood sugars were uh, running a little bit higher than normal. 
uh, even though I was uh, doing what I think or I thought was all the right things, I was beginning to develop the uh, beginnings of a, a lot of these chronic diseases. At this point, I knew that probably by the time I was 50, I was going to be on a medication for my cholesterol, a medication for my diabetes, a medication for my hypertension. Uh, and so by 50, like most Americans, I would be on some sort of medications. So uh, because this is eating away at the back of my mind, I was open uh, for a new message. At this time, my wife dragged me to see a gentleman named Rip Esselstyn at a Whole Foods market. He's the son of Caldwell Esselstyn. Uh, and uh, the whole Esselstyn family is very involved in plant-based nutrition. Uh, at this talk, um, his message was about reversing heart disease through diet. And many of these risk factors that I talked to you about that were uh, present in myself, uh, he basically uh, openly said through the option of a whole food plant-based diet, you can reverse these things and make them go away. And you can uh, certainly see that this opened my my mind a little bit. I was a little bit in denial, but at the same time, uh, uh, something got through. And at this point, I went on to read Caldwell Esselstyn's book, How to Prevent and Reverse uh, Heart Disease. Um, I also went on to read the China study. I started to look at things by Dr. Dean Ornish. Um, and at that point, um, I began to realize is extremely important. And I had already adopted that concept, but then it was in particular the type of diet that was important. And uh, at this point, I began to incorporate and adopt a plant-based diet into my personal lifestyle. And a little bit later, uh, you'll hear my professional path towards uh, plant-based nutrition and how my personal and professional paths uh, intersected. I'm a vascular surgeon. Many people don't know what a vascular surgeon is. I operate on the blood vessels of the body. And so uh, to make a distinction, sometimes people think I'm a cardiologist, uh, but we treat the same disease. It's atherosclerosis. It is a very common disease. Uh, heart disease is the number one killer of Americans, so it's, it's very much in the news. As opposed to like a cardiologist and a heart surgeon, uh, the cardiologist does the medical therapies and like minimally invasive therapies through punctures, and the heart surgeon does the bypasses. Um, I actually do both, okay? So I do the uh, medical therapy for vascular patients. I do the minimally invasive therapies, which are done through puncture-based procedures, and I do all of the uh, operations like bypasses and cleaning them out. So I get to... Um, I get to have relationships with my patients that are long-term as opposed to most surgeons who operate and then, uh, and then say goodbye. Uh, and, and that's actually particularly rewarding for me because um, then I can work on other aspects. Uh, and lifestyle modification has always been an important part of me treating my patients. And when I learned about plant-based nutrition uh, or even how important, not just plant-based nutrition, but how important nutrition was in uh, taking care of patients, it became a cornerstone of my therapy as well. Not everybody knows what atherosclerosis is. We, we've heard of heart disease, okay, but, and we might talk about it, but not everybody really knows what's going on. And so heart disease is uh, kind of the common term. Atherosclerosis is a medical term. Uh, but also we, we've heard of things called hardening of the arteries or plaque buildup. These all refer to the same thing. And this is the plaque that builds up on the inside, and it causes narrowings and blockages. Early on, it might not limit blood flow. Uh, just like in a pipe, a little bit of sludge on the side of the pipe doesn't limit flow. But as it builds up and builds up and builds up, eventually it reach a critical, reaches a critical mass where it can have effects. And there can be downstream effects. Right here we have a leg artery. And this is uh, a longitudinal cross-section of that artery. This is a normal one where the blood flow is not impeded because there's nothing, no, no blockage. Now take a look at this cross-section here. And you can see this is plaque buildup. And here's the blood flow. And that's the opening. Actually, honestly, even at this point, most people aren't exhibiting symptoms. But the people who have this eventually will. This is kind of the stages of atherosclerosis, 
right here is a very early stage. We call these fatty streaks. In this one, uh, there's just the yellow is visible, but it's not starting to grow to the inside and uh, block off the artery. Uh, in this one, this is a moderate stage. You can see there's fairly significant blockages. It's much like this picture here, and it is starting to restrict blood flow. And then look at this one here. This is a very serious case where whatever's downstream of this is going to bear the effects of lack of blood flow. Right here, I wanted to show you an actual picture. This is a real artery. This is an actual histologic uh, cross-section of uh, two arteries. This one is a very clean, very normal artery. Uh, it has multiple layers. I want to point out that an artery is actually a living, breathing, physiologic structure. It's not just a tube. It's a functioning organ. And then when we develop atherosclerosis, we've ruined the function of that organ. This is a, a really bad case of atherosclerosis. You can see the opening here. When I was studying effects of atherosclerosis, we talked about the hemodynamics. Uh, it actually involved uh, Bernoulli's uh, equation and Laplace's law and flow dynamics so that the reduction in flow is a function of the square of the radius. So this is a markedly reduced flow here. The other thing I want to point out to you is, and I talked about an artery being a living, breathing organ. Uh, it has multiple layers. There's a muscular layer, which allows the artery to dilate and contract as, it, as that muscular layer responds to different stimuli. There's an outer layer, and then there's a very important inner layer. This inner layer, it's one cell layer thick, and it's called the intima or endothelium. And I, bring, I, I, I point that out because there's some important things that I want you to understand about the intima or endothelium. It's one cell layer thick, but it's very important in, in function. It's, uh, it regulates things going inside and outside of the artery. Uh, it also creates and emits certain substances that are very important for us. Uh, in this normal artery, the intima is complete and intact. In this diseased artery, there is no intima. So this thing that is a very important part of the physiologic function of an artery is completely destroyed. So not only do you get this narrowed artery, but the, but, uh, which limits blood flow, but the functionality of the artery is also destroyed. Here's why I, I brought up the intima. The intima is responsible for releasing something called nitric oxide. Nitric oxide is an extremely important uh, molecule. Uh, it is a, a very pow powerful vasodilator. What that means is it helps arteries dilate or grow in size. It relaxes that muscle that I told you about that's in the outer layers. And so when you need to deliver more blood flow to a certain area, nitric oxide is released, the artery dilates, and you're able to deliver more blood flow. Also, that helps lower blood pressure. When an artery dilates, uh, it helps keep your blood pressure on the lower side. When your arteries are smaller and constricted, your blood pressure goes up. Here's really part of the, the trifecta of this. Uh, nitric oxide prevents atherosclerosis. Basically, all of these things here are arterial health, and nitric oxide is essential for arterial health. What's happening here? Uh, in this artery, where you're not only limiting blood flow downstream, you have no nitric oxide. So the nitric oxide, which was a preventer or protector against atherosclerosis, is no longer there. So not only are you developing atherosclerosis, the thing that's trying to fight it is gone, so more atherosclerosis develops. It's kind of like a bad cycle or a catch-22. It's just going to get worse and worse and worse. Atherosclerosis is this slow, indolent, uh, chronic disease that develops over the course of decades. It doesn't just happen uh, to my patients in their late 50s, 60s, and 70s. It's been developing over time. And uh, we started to really understand this uh, in, during the Korean War. They did a, a series of 300 consecutive autopsies on Korean War vets who were killed in action. What they did is they went and looked at their arteries and saw that uh, the average age of these young men was 22 years old, and they saw that 77% of them at the age of 22 already had 
the beginning of plaque formation. So this is a disease that starts at a young age. And now, fast forward 50, 60, 70 years. Think about the diet they ate in the 1950s. It actually wasn't that bad compared to the diet we eat today in America. So you fast forward to today, and this disease is starting younger and younger and younger. Now we see it in uh, autopsies in uh, prepubescent children, maybe kids who've been killed in a car accident or for other reasons, you can see it. So we know it's starting at 8, 9, 10 years old. But I really uh, recently went to uh, a lecture of a good friend of mine who is a maternal fetal medicine specialist. And she's an expert in plant-based nutrition and, and lifestyle medicine as well. She told me that atherosclerosis is now present in the arteries of infants in utero. So what does that tell you? It tells you that the diet of the mother can lead to the formation of these fatty streaks that are already present at birth. And, and now it makes sense to me why now over the course of this 20 to 25 years that I've been doing vascular surgery, I'm seeing this at an earlier and younger age. My patients all used to be 65 and 70 years old. Now it's not unusual for me to see someone who is in their late 50s. Sometimes I see people in their 40s and 30s. I've even treated people who are in their late 20s. I'm gonna sum this up for you in cardiovascular disease in one pretty little package. Despite all the money we throw at cardiac disease, it's the number two thing we spend money on. The number one thing is dementia, a great deal of which is vascular. Uh, the second most expensive thing in our healthcare system to the tune of three to $400 billion is coronary artery disease. And despite all that money we throw at it, we still have 650,000 cardiac deaths annually. We have 140,000 stroke, strokes annually, and then 200,000 amputations annually. So just these things is a million cases of morbidity and mortality, not to mention the dementia in the millions, the impotence in the millions. I didn't talk about kidney failure. So it's the number one cause of death and disease in the United States. We're throwing all this money at it, and yet we're not materially impacting it uh, from our current uh, medical therapy, which we call healthcare, but I call sick care. Now that you know that, what are you going to do about it? introduce oh, Dr. Yeah. Richa Mitzel. She is an obesity medicine specialist, which means that she works with individuals who struggle with weight issues. Physicians do not necessarily know how to address the weight issue and sometimes completely avoid it during their consultations. Therefore, Dr. Mitzel co-founded the Dallas Obesity Society, which was designed to educate healthcare providers on how to talk about the subject and what resources to offer their patients. We I would love to learn more about you and your practice. How did you decide to specialize in obesity? And is that a fairly new field? Yeah. So, you know, my path really started probably within the last 10 years. So I finished up my residency. I used to work as a hospitalist um, in that. So in the hospital, taking care of people who have all the end stages of things, right? Heart disease, heart attacks, uh, strokes, um, end results of diabetes, you know, all of that. And, um, I love the intensity of that work, but I always felt like I was made to be on the preventive side of things. That's just something that I had um, just not medically, but even personally been really passionate about. So um, about eight years ago, I um, had the opportunity um, just kind of in passing to become the medical director of a weight loss clinic. And I became fascinated by the field because I realized wow, we really have been uh, missing the boat here. And um, not to say that those treatments and things that I was doing weren't important, but I felt like that was a uh, area of medicine that really wasn't getting as much attention as it should, which was treating the root cause of all these other issues. So I 
um, became interested in that and did a lot of self-study and then eventually became uh, a diplomat of the Board of Obesity Medicine. And um, I realized that when I set up my practice two years ago, um, I set it up as a membership direct care practice. So I wanted to be able to spend time with people. I wanted to be able to counsel them and really give them the tools in addition to the medical evaluation and all of that. So I spend time talking about nutrition and stress management and sleep and social connections. And then I found the field of American Board of Lifestyle Medicine. And I said, oh my gosh, I'm already practicing this, but let me do more. So I'm actually about to take that exam and become board certified in that too, uh, because I just love, um, you know, taking those tools and getting that information and then being able to pass it on to my patients. So um, I'm really excited about where that will go next. But the, the reason why I structured my practice that way was I felt like within the confines of traditional medicine, I wasn't getting to spend that time, right? Um, and we know that those types of interventions really take um, a very personalized approach in addition to being able to spend time with people. So um, I set my practice up like that. I see my patients, they're enrolled in a membership program with me. I see them every month and then weekly I'm in touch with everybody and they can reach out if they're having issues. And that way I can you know, really treat root cause, but also in a way that I think it's conducive for how I want to practice medicine, but also how, what, what serves them. You know, a lot of times the emotional drivers of what drive our decisions, including what we eat, how we eat, how we think about food, um, and even just behavior change alone, oftentimes we have to kind of move the needle on our relationship with food. And that is something that I collaborate with local psychologists to refer patients to, to work with them on that aspect. I see a lot of eating disorders, especially like binge eating, mm -hmm. um, which you know requires that specialized care along with what I'm doing with them. And then the other component is that a lot of times people who've been dealing with weight issues you know, and, and it's kind of one of those things, which one came first, but um, often have issues with anxiety and depression that may be being self-medicated often with food or alcohol or other habits. And so I, I definitely collaborate with the mental health, um, you know, behavioral uh, health specialists. And then I also collaborate with bariatric surgeons when it's a uh, it's uh, appropriate to do that. I will say that a lot of the patients that I get are kind of like, no, no, I, I really don't want to do that right now. Um, you know, because, uh, but then I tell them, you know, really it's a matter of um, to looking at all the different options for treatment on a spectrum. And even if somebody has bariatric surgery, we still have to work on all the lifestyle and nutrition components of your wellness. Mm -hmm. And I see patients after bariatric surgery as well, because I often have patients who reach out after surgery, maybe three or four years after when they start regaining weight. Unfortunately, that is a reality. Um, about 30% of, uh, of people who have a gastric bypass, and those numbers are even more for people who've had bands and things like that, 
regain weight. So we have to have a more comprehensive type of approach. So I definitely collaborate with other um, specialists, um, also endocrinologists. The word obesity has such a stigma. And, you know, with here in the United States, having two thirds of the people being either afflicted with being overweight or obese, I can see how obesity medicine is probably a growing field. How do people decide to then go from dieting to finally having a specialist like yourself? Yeah, so I think that what attracts people, I think, is that I really try to avoid talking about, I, I, I don't like the word dieting, right? So yes. it, it kind of has a very passing, fleeting characteristic to it. Like, oh, I'm on a diet. So then I'm off a diet. Um, so I think that what I try to talk about um, in my blog and in my outreach is really embracing a lifestyle change and, um, and really understanding that um, it does take a comprehensive approach. I think people who've dealt with these issues for a long time, they deal with a lot of um, judgment, not only from others, but from themselves, right? Because you often might feel like a failure, like, oh, I did this diet, I lost the weight, then I regained the weight. That has very detrimental effects, not only physically, but even mentally. So I think that people, um, as, more, as we can provide more education about, you know, it's not about judgment, it's not about body shaming, but it's about health and it's about prevention. And so when we can first acknowledge that and then also acknowledge that, you know, when so many people in our, in our country and in our population are dealing with an issue, it can sometimes become normalized where everyone around us just may have a certain appearance and we don't maybe feel as different or we're like, well, you know, everyone around me is kind of like this, so I must be okay. But actually, it's kind of a systemic thing that's happening and it's, it, it's very complicated, right? The reasons why. Um, because of how our food system is and how, um, you know, how, how we eat as a society and as a culture, um, it's very complicated. Um, so I think taking out judgment, understanding that it's about health, and then really understanding that um, it's a medical issue. Um, when early on people start developing, say, weight gain, and, you know, I agree that word obesity kind of has a stigma and really it's not the full picture because BMI doesn't really tell the whole story. Um, we know that there's lots of cases of people who have a normal BMI and they're not healthy. So I don't think that we can only define health by just weight or BMI. Um, that's really not capturing everybody, <laughs> but really understanding that um, it's a medical issue when we start gaining weight, especially in our midsection and around those abdominal organs and if we start showing signs of high blood pressure, high cholesterol, pre-diabetes, diabetes, fatty liver is becoming the most common cause of needing a liver transplant, you know, that's a problem. And we have to face it, but without judgment and really with compassion and coming from science. Thank you for clarifying that because you often wonder how can you help or support uh, people who want to be healthier and maybe overweight. That's a big message that we try to convey to the people that, you know, reach out to us or attend anything that we do is that we're, we're not here to focus on weight. We're here to focus on wellness and living a healthier life. I once read somewhere that the majority of the patients that have weight issues actually feel the judgment from their physician. 
the prescription is eat less, exercise more? Well, I think that, you know, unfortunately, they're the gatekeepers and they're, they're the first line, right? And our primary care doctors are doing the best that they can within the confines of the medical system and the way it's set up. And they don't have the time to be able to talk about these things because these are complicated. I think number one, you know, so that's one of our missions and with, a, with the Dallas Obesity Society that we founded was to educate other healthcare providers on how to talk about this subject and what resources to offer. Because you have to know where a person is when they walk into your exam room and we should be asking, well, I don't ask because they're coming to me for that purpose, but a primary care physician can ask, would you like to discuss your weight today? There are some things that you may not be aware of that could be affecting your health and it could be great to have this conversation if you would like to today. Tell us a little bit more about the Dallas Obesity Society. Yeah, so the Dallas Obesity Society, we're a group of uh, physicians and um, other, other healthcare providers. We have a nurse practitioner on the board and a registered dietitian as well. And we decided to basically found this organization to be able to provide. And, you know, with COVID, <laughs> our reach has now gone national because um, it used to be that we would do the events locally, right, in the DFW area. Um, so we've been putting on um, uh, a few lecture series. We've done uh, a few CME events. We have another one coming out this month. Um, and we're basically providing uh, obesity medicine education to other healthcare providers to be able to uh, educate and empower them to provide compassionate and evidence-based um, treatment options and resources to their patients. It's amazing how much um, power we give our physicians. We sort of look to you guys as being a tremendous resource. I think we have to walk the walk. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, I know that, you know, but we're also human, right? So mm -hmm. health providers are human. And even though we may want to walk the walk, I think a lot of times, you know, we struggle with things just like everybody else. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what kind of makes us relatable, I hope, also, right? Yes. Like, we may not be perfect, but I should at least be trying and I should at least be incorporating the things that I'm telling you to in put in your life into place. I need to be working on those as well. Yes. <laughs> Dr. Mittal, what do you love most about what you do? I think I love the most being able to blend my medical expertise with the lifestyle and really being able to kind of intersect those and be able to offer people the the medical information and assessment of this is what is going on with you. These are our treatment options. These are the things that you can do to impact them. And I think that empowering people with that information is mm -hmm. something that I really enjoy. This is one of my favorite interviews because we had the opportunity to speak with a Canadian couple who was featured in the documentary, Eating You Alive. They are Sean and Dan Muskalak. Sean has a wonderful weight loss story. At one point, she was weighing close to 300 pounds when she discovered a video by Dr. John McDougall called The Perils of Dairy. This changed her entire perspective on how she ran her household. The family went along with the changes and Sean and Dan were looking great and feeling great. Then two years later, Dan discovered that he had stage four kidney cancer. In addition, they volunteer at animal sanctuaries. There are voices for the animals and they care about our planet as well. This is where we first uh, saw you guys. Well, I guess it really starts with our son. 
He was uh, 15. He joined a gym. He wanted to be a bodybuilder, weightlifter. And at the gym, they told him you would need to take protein powders if you were ever going to put on muscle. So he came home. He said this to me. And like a good mom, off I went to the health food store. And I was looking at those giant tubs of whey protein with the paragraphs of ingredients. And the sales clerk comes up to me and she says, oh, who are you buying this for? I said, my son. How old? 15. She kind of leans in and whispers to me in a really soft voice. She goes, you need to go home and do some research before you give this to your kids. Mm. And I thought, when are you ever in a store and they deter you from buying a product? So that really, you know, intrigued me. So I came home and I Googled whey protein powder. And by, by some good luck, I came across John McDougall, Dr. John McDougall's um, YouTube video, The Perils of Dairy. And I watched it. And I remember thinking, who is this crazy quack, right? Because it was completely the opposite of everything I'd ever been taught until my mid-40s, right? I needed milk for strong teeth and strong bones, and it does a body good, and you need to make sure your kids are getting lots of dairy products for calcium, blah, 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 all of that. So I watched it once, and it was just so you know, befuddling. I was just like, what is this? That I watched it three more, two more times, like three times in a row, back to back to back. And of course, YouTube, there's always a, a side panel of different doctors. And of course, there was uh, Esselstyn, Ornish, um, who else was there? Dr. T. Colin Campbell. T. Colin Campbell, who I had no idea who that was at the time. But I started to watch all these YouTube videos and it just Lectures. absolutely yeah. intrigued me it just sparked some kind of flame and i and at that time i was an avid reader i was in book clubs all that kind of stuff fiction. and that was 2010 i haven't read fiction since 2010 <laughs> and so that christmas um dan got me a kindle and so i was able to download all of the, the these doctors books researchers and doctors and i just started to read and at that time i wasn't working outside the home so i remember like getting everybody off to school i had two teenagers and a husband who was working shift work and so i'd get them out of the house and then i would literally sit and read for maybe five or six hours i just couldn't get enough and so I started leaning in. That was the fall of 2010. I started cooking differently. And then I started to make myself a plant-based meal. And I was still cooking standard American diet for the kids and Dan because they were not interested in what I was doing at all. And so it kept, I kept going that way. And then finally, I read the China study in the early in the spring of 2011 and that was the quintessential moment that i realized i could no longer feed myself or my family in that manner and so it was april 1st april fool's day that i decided that's it and i cleaned out the whole house i took you know a big bin over to our neighbors of frozen bacon and pounds of butter and everything and i'm like hey do you want this and they're looking at me like uh, Some stuff went to the woods for the coyotes <laughs> yeah, and yeah. The animals. Cleaned out the freezer of any meat, just yeah. And so it was like kind of um, you know, as much as I've been leaning in, it was overnight for the kids and Dan. I was like, too bad, so sad. This is how we eat at home, and that's just the way it's going to be. And so that first month of fully committing, I lost fifteen pounds, and I have to say that. At that time, I weighed 293 pounds. I was almost 300 pounds. 
And I had tried throughout my life, I think classic story, you know, I gained a lot of weight for my first pregnancy, more for my second, always wanted to lose it, always struggled with my weight, uh, did all the diets, you know, the Jenny Craig's, the Weight Watchers, everything like that. And sure, they would work while you were on them. Um, but then as soon as you hit a goal and you went back to eating what everybody else ate, of course, the weight came back. Mm -hmm. So I kind of given up on losing weight. It just didn't feel like it was ever something I was going to be able to achieve. And so I really did this for the health benefits, for, um, you know, I've been reading, what may lay ahead as yeah, we got older. reading all these books and I thought, you know, I'm a prime candidate for heart disease and diabetes and cancer and all of these things due to my weight. And maybe I should be changing how I eat. So, so I lost 15 pounds that first month and I was totally shocked because we still call ourselves high volume eaters because we eat, you know, I was eating mountains, mountains of food. <laughs> it just happened to be all plants. And so that was astonishing to me. And it, I, so I just kept going and it was like, I never had an end goal in mind because I never imagined that it would ever become as much as it was. So it was like, okay, uh, maybe I could lose 30 pounds. Oh, maybe I could lose 50. Oh my God, maybe 70, maybe not hundred. Oh my God. And it just kept going. And over the next two years, I lost 133 pounds. Wow. Oh my goodness. It was life-changing. I don't think until you're obese or you have somebody in your family or a loved one who is obese that you really understand the struggle, hmm. the shame, the embarrassment, hmm. um, all of those things. I was really a spectator in our family's life. I mean, Dan took the kids skiing. He took them camping. He took them canoeing. And I didn't because I just I was too obese I was too out of shape um I just couldn't participate in family life so I watched and I made comfort food I was the one who was making the you know and a food was my currency I if somebody did me a favor or or I would make them a cheesecake or that's what I was known as and I think you need to phenomenal baker and cook definitely <laughs> you need to stamp out an identity for yourself because you feel like you don't fit into all the other categories so you think okay that's my identity i'm the one that makes cheesecakes and all kinds of bakes cakes pies. and all of that kind of stuff pies and we thought we were eating healthy prior to eating plant-based you know we were never processed food from packages or boxes everything was always from scratch cooking right. and you have the idea and the ideology and the mindset that that's healthy but right. little then we found out yeah. no and we still you know we do get a lot of people reach out to us and and uh communicate with us and they're like oh we have a pretty healthy diet and and i'm like you know okay tell me what your diet is and of course it was the diet that we were eating mm -hmm. and so i think we're all led to believe uh, you know i i yeah. think most of our nutritional information comes from well-funded advertising yeah. campaigns yeah. i mean oftentimes we just don't know what we don't know Exactly. Right. Yeah. And, and you can't blame yourself. No. I mean, this is what you were grown up. You were taught this as you were growing up that you need all of these different yeah. foods. And, yeah. and so you, you do that and you feed your kids. I mean, I just sometimes I lie awake at night thinking about the crap that I fed my kids. Mm. I mean, they're both now plant based or vegan. 
Um, but, you know, I always think, did I plant the seed of prostate cancer or breast cancer by the crap that I was feeding my kids? Yeah. Here's some proper information with the very robust data yeah. as to what we've been taught prior to now what we know really with the democratization of information. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting in the two years uh, that we were from 2011 uh, onwards, um, so I was eating that way 95% of the time. So in the home, eating plant-based and then being a police officer, 12-hour shifts, four on, four off, night and day shifts. And I was out of the home scarfing crap down, you know. And uh, But even eating that way 95% of the time, um, at the time I shed about 35 pounds over the two years. I got rid of high blood pressure, high cholesterol, uh, metabolic syndrome, and prediabetes all vanished. Wow. And um, so it was very, very encouraging. And in particular, you know, you start to lead to your, your mid-40s, late-40s, retirements on the horizon. And then again, too, you look at some other individuals and, you know, the, the illnesses, chronic illnesses with heart disease and diabetes and so on. And, and then so you say to yourself, wow, this is, this, is, this is interesting and it works. So when she made the decision, April 1st, uh, and, and you guys went fully plant-based at home, how, what, was your, what was your take on that? Well, I guess, I guess it was okay. Let's do this. And then because, you know, she was, you know, feeding me the information as well. I read this today. You should watch this. Check out a little like, bit about this. Yeah. But she was, you know, she was fortunate that she had the, at the time, the time to yeah. dedicate to it. And, uh, but again, as, as a, you know, a self-taught and, and a learner, you know, she's phenomenal with the information retention. So the things that were being repeated to me, I thought, okay, well, that's all valid points. And I've seen for myself what's happened. But initially, of course, great cook. But when you change your, you know, your cooking strategies and stuff, yeah, the first month or so, you know, some okay. of the food in your palate is still yeah. changing. And there was some epic fails for sure. And, and it, was, it was the running joke is that, you know, I would serve something and that the three of them would pick at it. And then they were like, okay, we're going to go for a drive. <laughs> <laughs> drive through, right? Yeah. It was like, you know. Because we, we live about 30 miles out of town. So yeah. it was quite a drive. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We went through our rice and beans phase. For our kids, it was more about the animal ethics. I think that's what really, really got them. Because of course, when you're a teenager, you're immortal and you're never going to get sick and die. So you know, so we were going along. We were, uh, you know, hitting it was the fall of 2013. Mm -hmm. We were looking amazing. We were feeling amazing. Dan was going to be retiring soon. The kids mm -hmm. were going to be moving out. We were going to be empty nesters. Life was good. Mm -hmm. We thought we had the world by the tail and that we were bulletproof. Yeah. And, and then, then so a week uh, was the beginning, the first week of November um, that um, uh, I was suffering from abdominal pain throughout the whole week. And um, the past, I, I'm a police officer with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police for about 33 and a half years. And the last 10 of which have, have been as a, a media spokesperson, police spokesperson. So um, not uh, out in, in, you know, in the cars patrolling. But so at the office, everybody was noticing I looked pale. I was kind of sweaty. And, you know, what's going on? You know, well, I said, like, yeah, I got this abdominal pain. And I put it off throughout the whole week. And I was thinking, oh, man, I might be developing kidney stones or kidney infection because that was something that was predominant and gastrointestinal issues in my family. Um, given the lifestyle of French Canadian cuisine and, and uh, you know, some alcohol and cigars and whatnot. And um, so throughout the week, I put it off. And then the Saturday, I was splitting several cords of wood. 
And by the end of the day, I came back into the house and just buckled in pain. I said, we've got to go to the hospital. I can't, I can't go on. Something's going on here. So off we went to the emergency ward at a local hospital and uh, they booked us in. Uh, they conducted just a whole slew of tests. And I advised, I'm thinking maybe kidney stones or kidney infection. So after waiting several hours, of course, then the physician came back and they ushered us into uh, an examination room. And it was odd because, you know, there's the gurney and there's nowhere to sit. And he just stepped into the room. We were just standing there. And within two sentences, he looked at me and said, clutching papers in his hand, he says, Dan, it's not kidney stones or kidney infection, it's cancer. And he said it exactly like that. And, you know, that, that word just reverberates. And um, just as the cliche is shown, the movies, time slows and you're listening to it. And uh, he started to explain that uh, it's kidney cancer. Your right kidney is one massive tumor. Uh, and the scans show that the tumor has metastasized or it's spread out of the kidney into the vena cava, which is your main vein, and it appears to be into your lymph nodes. So that, in a nutshell, he was explaining to us that uh, it was stage four renal cell carcinoma. And um, it... Um, that must have been absolutely devastated, especially when you've been on this healthy path of self-care, eating plant-based foods, probably even, you were probably even more physically active as a result, right? You probably had more energy. Yeah, and it's interesting that uh, I looked at, you know, even that night going into the hospital, other than not feeling well, I looked like I do today, even a little slimmer. Um, and um, so we were just like, well, how can this be? So, you know, the rug gets pulled from under your feet. Uh, so you spend a week of notifying, you know, family and, and breaking that news to them. And and then going into work, and uh, again, fortunate that I'm a federal employee, so you know benefits uh, were very fortunate for that. So I told everybody that, you know, I was taking a leave of absence, and that there was stage four kidney cancer. That uh, my prognosis was months to two years, if that. Um, and it was followed by more visits to the specialist, who explained exactly what had occurred and, and that your you know the vena cava is that truncule vein that all your major organs are attached to uh so you described that uh, the tumor was now growing into that upwards towards my lung lungs and heart and that um they said the first order of the day would be surgery to remove the kidney and extreme nephrectomy and either dissect the vena cava if they weren't able to just simply pull the tumor out uh and also clean out some lymph nodes um, and uh, they said that, uh, you know, this is, this is really bad, and, and um, stage four kidney cancer is terminal. There's no effective treatment for it. And then they said, but um, because you're such a healthy individual, you know, the, can or the, the surgery itself was an extreme surgery that, that had a lot of risks attached to it. They said, again, because you're so healthy, you're an excellent candidate for the, for the surgery. So the, uh, we got a, a pretty quick date, a quick turnaround uh, from November 9th being the, the night in the emergency ward. And uh, to note, that was the exact moment that I fully committed to a plant-based lifestyle of that was it. You know, in the room in emergency, after hearing everything that Sean had been talking about and listening and, and you know, sinking into me as well, there was no argument from me it was essentially, that's it, We're, I'm going whole food plant-based from that moment onwards. Um, so off we went to the four of us, and that's how we spent our Christmas Eve at the Vancouver General Hospital. 
um, for the surgery, uh, the surgery appointment. And Christmas Eve, we, uh, I had uh, the uh, two nephrologists and a cardiologist on hand for the surgery because there was risk of perhaps bleeding out on the table. Um, so uh, they said, well, we can either kind of open it up a little bit or make a massive incision to really have a good look around. I said, do what you got to do, you know. So, yeah, I was from large chevron across my abdomen. Uh, they removed the kidney. They were able to pull the uh, tumor out of the vena cava without dissecting it, which I think was a, a, a big plus. Uh, and then they removed several immediate lymph nodes around the kidney. Um, but, again, I had several distant uh, lymph nodes that were affected. And of course, you can't go around the body plucking lymph nodes out. So they, there was three that were quite concerning that there remained. One, my mid-back by my windpipe, and then one of their lower chest area. Um, so, so, yeah. And then to back up, you know, I think after his diagnosis, um, you know, I, I think for, mm. for two weeks, you just kind of are in a bit of a zombie state because you can't believe this is happening to you. This happens to other people, not to you. And... Mm. Um, and then after about two weeks, it was kind of like, okay, well, I've been doing all this reading. Uh, and I really kind of started to focus on cancer and nutrition. Mm -hmm. And as we all know, there's about 100 years of data showing that animal protein promotes cancer cell growth. And I remember, you know, you're so angry because nobody tells you this. And then you also are hopeful because, okay, we've been doing this for a couple of years let's put it to the test. Mm -hmm. And so we really, you know, we had been uh, kind of, you know, vegan, plant-based, but we really took that deep dive. From November we, 9th onwards. Yeah, well, because we knew this huge surgery was coming up. So it was, we just got so clean and mean, and it was what I called my program of nutritional excellence. So it was uh, no broken grains, no oil, no salt, no sugar, tons of greens, no processed foods. It was just such an amazing high quality diet to mm. get him ready for this huge surgery and to actually, you know, okay, let's, you know, Colin Campbell says this is, so let's do it kind of thing. You know, we were highly motivated too. I mean, a lot highly of motivated and self-selected. Uh, is a term that uh, Alan Goldhammer uses for, for his program. So we self-selected because we thought we're going to do this and we were highly motivated definitely to yeah. stack the odds in, in, uh, in, in our favor, in my favor. And everybody said, well, why did you go plant-based? I didn't want to die. So the surgery, um, luckily, I mean, he, you were so healthy. Yeah, it was interesting too. Like I said, the, the, um, they were amazed. They said, you know, you stand a very good chance of fully recovering from the surgery because of it. And I got through the surgery. I was in the hospital for about six, uh, about six days. And um, it was a brutal surgery. And I, you know, I woke up post-surgery and I had an intravenous in my neck. I had one in my arm. Um, I had a catheter attached and an epidural for, for pain management. And, um, you know, again, never would I have ever dreamt or, or envisioned to see myself sitting in a hospital bed like that. And yeah, it, mm -hmm. it was it was it was difficult. The scans were showing at the, even at the beginning, no spread, no growth, uh, other than these three lymph nodes affected. So what they came to a conclusion was that the only hope that there was for medical intervention or medical assistance or some kind of treatment was to get on to a trial study. 
with some of the newer immunotherapy drugs that were uh, in the, the phase one trial phase uh, study phases at the time. We, we got onto this study that was uh, March of 2014. And again, so from diagnosed in November to March, those were scans almost every six weeks. And that's quite, that's several months. There was no spread to other organs. There was no spread to my bones or bloods or any, or, 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 or no, more no. further mastitization of yeah, the cancer. No, no so it didn't spread. And that was prior to even getting onto the treatment. Um, so the, uh, the protocol was to be uh, four treatments of the combination of drugs every three weeks. And that would be followed by a maintenance program of the one drug every two weeks for the rest of my life. Or oh as God. they quote unquote, as long as your body can uh, endure it. And uh, so I woke up in the middle of the night with a slight fever, but fever nonetheless. And uh, so I contacted, uh, I woke her up and, uh, you know, three o'clock in the morning, they said, we got to go to the hospital. I got like, a fever. Oh, you're fine. You're fine. You're, you're fine. fine. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, no, we got to go. We went to the hospital, the emergency ward again. Here when you're on a trial study, it seems that they don't know anything of what your protocols are. So the dialogue was very positive and very, you know, they were full of questions. Well, what about this? What are we supposed to do? How about this? How about that? So they contacted the clinic. Uh, they were instructed as to what to do, and that was to draw blood. Uh, and they said, uh, okay, we're going to send it in, but uh, it's going to be a while, so you might as well go home. And uh, we woke up later on in the morning, about 11 in the morning, with all the lights flashing, and then checked one of the messages of the cancer clinic. The guy was panicked. The guy from Vancouver. From Vancouver, yeah. so contacted him by phone. He says, are you back at the hospital? I said, no, they sent us home. He said, God, you got to get back. Your, your liver right now is um, the drugs have hit your liver. Your drugs are attacking your liver. And he said that uh, the test results, they finally got them. And my liver was producing 25 times the normal enzyme levels that it normally does. Um, and um, it was a near fatal side effect. I healed from, uh, from the liver attack. And uh, eventually, and then the prednisone, of course, you know, they taper you off that very, very slowly so that your body starts recovering from it and recouping and doing what it's supposed to be doing. When they said that he was supposed to get worse and die, he was just getting better and better, mm -hmm. healthier and healthier. And yeah, we'd go into the cancer clinic for another appointment and we'd, you know, walk in looking like this. They're kind of people sitting there, you know, in the waiting room that looking very ill and even, you know, it's just like, oh. And so that one last meeting, that appointment, she looked at it, she closed the file literally, physically, and, and said, we're closing your file, you're cancer free, your cancer is radiologically undetectable. Why isn't there a team at our house looking at what we eat, when we go to bed, what kind of toilet paper you use, you know, like right. kind of laundry soap, like all of those things. There's, there's yeah. nothing. Why aren't they studying the guy who conquered cancer? Mm -hmm. Right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So, you know, that kind of led us into the lifestyle that we're, where we are now. We, um, you know, eating, a eating you alive was just a crazy thing to get into. That was such mm -hmm. a... Dr. Riss and I interviewed Karen Wang as we made another trip to pick up PPEs from an organization called DFW Care. This is a local Chinese American organization which self-organized almost within 24 hours um, as part of a WeChat conversation that they had and they feared the devastation that could take place here in the Dallas area as the coronavirus was spreading throughout the country. 
Karen Wang is part of the DFW Care Organization and works in the hospital assessment group. She has worked closely with Dr. Riz along with other physicians to assess their hospital needs. Who we have today is actually Karen Wang, who is part of DFW Care. Thank you so much for inviting me to this show. Yeah, we're very excited to have you. I mean, as a physician, I really admire what you guys are doing and I, I can't wait for you to explain it more so that we can get the word out and share this with other people. So uh, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about DFW Care, how it came about and what your role in DFW Care is. DFW Care actually started uh, with uh, Dr. Fu Ching Liu who's professor in the Women's um, University and she's she had um, Fret circle with nurses um, around the country, and um, she's hearing people asking her, uh, talking about that running out of PPEs in their hospitals, and she's she get concerned, and she started to talking to her friends, and, and then um, um, March seventeenth uh, that night we actually formed a uh, WeChat. Uh, group. WeChat is kind of like WhatsApp app in the in the Chinese American world. So uh -huh. uh, we actually group group a bunch of people together on that night on March 17th. Uh, soon after, I think on the next day, we we came about uh, you know close to 500 people in the group. Wow. So yeah, it was uh, you know kind of a running really fast because everybody is concerning about this um, uh, coronavirus. And because the Chinese people, uh, Chinese American has experienced our families and friends back in China experiencing, uh, you know, coronavirus in China. So we have been watching this for so long and we've been seeing so many medical staff in China that was, you know, risking their lives and, you know, going to the front line and uh, fighting the diseases. And so uh, a lot of people actually, uh, you know, passed away because of this. Uh, so we were very concerned about, you know, the medical staff in America, you know, when we encounter this here, you know, what's going to happen. So uh, we, a lot of people are very, very concerned. And so quickly, just within a day, we formed a core team with about seven committees that's in charge of financing, uh, fundraising, and um, uh, hospital assessments and connections, communications. And also um, we have the purchasing group, uh, and we have more of, you know, working with the public to uh, um, media to spread out the words. Mm -hmm. And we also have the team that's uh, in charge of, uh, you know, um, publish, uh, uh, sending out the materials once we have them. So we have uh, multiple uh, groups just uh, have the leaders set up um, within one day. Wow, that sounds like you, you basically set up a business in one day with all of the departments, you know, you got marketing, distribution, fundraising, organization. I mean, that's a, a, an amazing amount of work. And, and just to think, you know, literally, that was just a not even maybe three weeks ago that you guys got started. That's just amazing. Yeah, thank you so much. And we, we did our best because we are we know we ran out of 
time. We're running against time, actually, right, yeah. to save lives. So uh, what we did is that, you know, we're especially the core team members running around the clock trying to get things, uh, you know, set up at the beginning. And then uh, within four days, we raised uh, $80,000 and then uh, sent the uh, first batch of PPEs to hospitals. That's amazing. Oh my goodness. And where did that funding come from? Uh, the funding actually coming from the community, um, you know, just from the WeChat, people uh, joining the WeChats, they are just pouring money in. And also one of the... Uh, volunteers in my group which is um, the hospital assessment group she kind of see she worked with Baylor Hospital uh, uh, series so um, and she actually sees and sees the needs and she kind of uh, uh, came up to me and say you know Karen I I have a personal family uh, foundation that I would like to contribute to this effort because I I know you guys are doing great things and and we are doing great things. So I would like to contribute $50,000 to this effort. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, oh my gosh. yeah that's, that's just the second day or third day. I don't remember. But, you know, we got this uh, amazing founding. And then we, we immediately secure the local, um, the local vendors to get the uh, PPEs put together. And then the next day, we, we purchased uh, the PPEs and, and sent to the hospital. We have uh, people from uh, different fields uh, with different expertise and bringing together uh, in a core team. And mm -hmm. we have actually the people um, managing the uh, purchasing of the merchandise are actually the ones uh, helping buying stuff over to support the Wuhan at the time. So uh, when, when, when uh, Wuhan was in, um, you know, was in great need at the time. Mm -hmm. So they were the same people uh, that's helping us on our, you know, on our, our effort to pr purchase the merchandise as well. They were not really, you know, expert at the beginning before, you know, but <laughs> throughout uh, working for, you know, getting the merchandise to Wuhan, they kind of learn all, all the aspects, regulations and different models, what they do, how can, how they can, help the uh, medical staff, you know, so they know the ins and outs of everything. Yeah, became so, the experts. So you were able to quickly assimilate them into your group and, and they had a certain level of expertise in procuring these things, uh, which they'd already done for one region. So now, now they can apply it for another region. You know, when we heard that it's coming to New York, you know, how the situation happens in New York, we know it's coming, you know, and, uh, we know that, you know, in the next a couple of weeks might be very, very, you know, uh, critical to us that, you know, if we don't protect our neighborhood, our, our city, we could uh, end up in this, you know, devastating situation as well. So, you know, we, we already kind of um, have the understanding of the dis social distance um regulations at the time but you know um lack of uh, ppe supplies all all across the board is very very concerning to us so you know after the first batch we sent to the hospitals and uh, we got flooding in uh of requests coming to us 
and, and you know from the nurses and doctors you know saying that we're running out we're asking to uh, wearing a mask for 10 days you know stories like that really concerns us mm -hmm. so we worked around the clock you know getting the um, the PPEs from China and then we also working around clocks trying to understand you know the situation of the of the hospitals so i i will tell you from personal experience of course uh, i'm so grateful you've helped my primary hospital baylor sunnyvale uh what they did is they asked us uh what is it that we need the most uh and we can help they you know we helped prioritize and they were able to provide us with with uh, personal protective equipment which we were in low you know low supply and kept us going i understand that you've helped dozens of hospitals. Tell us about some of the other hospitals that you've uh, been participating with. I think we, at the beginning, we work with uh, Baylor's system, uh, working with the sourcing department. And then we started to uh, receive more of uh, the requests from doctors and nurses. And then after talking to them, and then they go to talk to the, the hospital sourcing department or, or their department leads uh, and to, you know, to mention our effort and then, you know, if they would like to take our donations. So I worked with a uh, public health a professional to actually uh, checked out the database uh, that she can access to, to find out the list of the hospitals that's in Dallas County and uh, Collin County, which, uh, which are the counties that has a higher number of confirmed cases at the time. And then we started uh, calling those hospitals, of finding out from the internet their, their, their calling number. And then we called the hospitals and started from there. So the first batch actually coming from the cold calls, which means, you know, we just uh, contacting the hospitals and see if they have any shortages. Yeah. And then we did receive, uh, you know, the... Uh, the the um, forms that they filled out with uh, the number of um, PPEs that they are really lacking of. So based on those numbers that we started our first purchase. And then later on, we started receiving, you know, uh, uh, calls and, and, and uh, uh, spreading of the concerns on Facebook and ne uh, next door. That's how we get it uh, more of the, you know, requests from uh, different angles. You know, just going back to the topic, I, I would like to mention, we did encounter some of the bureaucracies that the hospitals uh, just did not want to accept donations from, uh, you know, from uh, communities, but asking their, their staff to go find the masks themselves. And I, I found this very sad that you know um they, they don't want to take responsibilities and, and let the staff uh, to seek out for help and and that just you know i i don't know what to say but what i can do is just providing these uh, medical staff directly uh the masks and you know and, and the protections that we can provide and right. they just they can just sign the waivers themselves in this episode yeah. we have dr arthi fanguru who is a triple board certified physician and endocrinology diabetes and thyroid specialist who provides high level well-rounded care at complete medicine in san antonio texas tell us a little bit about yourself yeah, sure. So um, as you said, I'm an endocrinologist here in San Antonio. So um, that means I'm an MD and my training was pretty long. So first it was uh, 
undergrad, which I did at Northwestern, um, then came back to San Antonio. I'm from Texas for medical school. Um, went to Baylor uh, in my hometown, Houston, for internship, and then met my husband. I've been chasing him around the country since then. So I finished my residency at Tulane University School of Medicine, and then we did our fellowships up at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. Um, and then we wanted to come back to Texas and both found jobs here in San Antonio. I started my career working at a large endocrinology private practice called Diabetes and Glandular Disease Clinic. Um, it's actually uh, one of the largest, if not the largest, um, endocrinology private practice in the country. Um, so I got to see a lot of patients, which it was just such an amazing experience because, you know, there was patients flowing through my door. And as as we talked about a little bit earlier, um, diabetes in San Antonio is a pretty big, big problem for our patients. So just got to really um, hone my skills, read the guidelines over and over again, get a lot of patient experience. I was seeing, you know, 30 patients a day at that practice. And um, it was wonderful um, for a new new attending physician practicing on her own. Um, but there were a lot of things about the healthcare system that I didn't love. Um, mostly the patient experience was suboptimal. And I, I just believe that all of my patients are VIPs. And I feel that all of my patients deserve a standard of treatment and care and convenience that I wasn't able to provide in the traditional insurance-based clinic model. And I also started learning a lot about pricing transparency and looking at how much my patients were paying. Um, and I got drawn to this model called direct primary care um, and direct care in general. And so I left that practice about a year and a half ago to start a direct care endocrinology practice. It's, I think my practice is one of very few. I only know of two in Texas um, that are direct endocrinology practices. But um, we get to deliver very patient-centric care, convenient care, utilize technology, telemedicine, um, and have just that patient relationship that I was craving as a physician and I know that patients benefit from. Um, so that's what I do a year and a half later and, and I'm loving it. Why did you choose endocrinology? And, and also tell our audience what endocrinology is. Yeah, so that's a, that's a great point. Endocrinology is one of those big words in medicine that we like to throw around. Um, but endocrinology is basically the study of hormones. So any hormonal diseases, um, any hormonal disease is really my area of expertise. The um, disease that I treat the most is diabetes. Uh -huh. It's the most prevalent disease that, um, that an endocrinologist treats. And type 2 diabetes is the most common, but we also uh, treat type 1 diabetes. Um, the next most common disease that we treat is thyroid disease. So um, underactive thyroid, overactive thyroid, thyroid cancer. Um, and then we treat other hormonal diseases like adrenal disease, pituitary disease, low testosterone, female hormone disorders, but those tend to be much less common. Is PCOS part of that spectrum? Yeah, so PCOS does um, have insulin resistance as a component of it, which is the um, one of the root causes of type 2 diabetes. So it is there is a lot of overlap between GYN and endocrinology, yeah. for sure. When did you become plant-based and, and start applying that to your practice? Um, kind of 
crazy interesting story um, and a little bit serendipitous. So when I was working at my old practice, um, we had our nanny who at that time came from Brazil as an au pair and she moved in with us and she's a nutritionist and she's plant-based. And I'm an endocrinologist and like many physicians, I didn't really pay much attention to it, to be quite honest. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very humbled by, by that experience, but I didn't pay much attention to it. But she came when my little boy, who is now two and a half, he was a few months old, and um, when she first came, uh, our life was just kind of insane. My husband was working as a night intensivist, um, working 14-hour shifts. He gained all the baby weight that I didn't gain. Um, our, uh, I was working really long hours. Um, our son was not thriving um, like, like any mom would want their child to and it was really because of just the rigors of our work and the demands of our work were just too much for all of the things that we were trying to do. And I started having strange symptoms that, you know, I was 33 at the time and um, I was fairly healthy, normal BMI, didn't have any medical conditions, but I was very fatigued. I had migraines. I, I struggled with migraines since I was in high school, but they were just getting really bad. And I had um, joint pains and I was just like, oh my gosh, <laughs> I need to do something. Um, and so I asked my nanny, can you teach me about this plant-based thing? Can I, I'm just going to try it. And so I tried it and all of a sudden I started feeling like within days, my joint pains went away. I started feeling better pretty much immediately. And this was in um, January of 2020 or no, sorry, January, 2019. And um, then I never had any plans of going completely plant-based. I just was trying to eat healthier. But then I found that every time that I would eat non-plant-based, I would feel crummy again. And I was just busy. I didn't have time to feel bad. So as any rational person like me, I'm very rational. I was like, okay, well, I guess I'm going plant-based because I feel better and I'm able to achieve my goals better with that. And my son actually, I actually was struggling with um, breast milk supply. So I'd been hesitant to change my diet. But after that, I actually had a boost in supply. Mm. And so I was like, okay, well, this is working out. And so then my husband was like, well, if you're doing a diet, then I'm going to do the diet too, because it doesn't make sense for us to do eat two different ways. And I was like, well, that's awesome. And so he like I said, he gained all the baby weight and he lost it within three months of intermittent fasting and plant-based diet. And so that's when I got introduced to um, Colin Campbell Center for Nutrition Studies. I did the plant-based nutrition course, learned a lot of science, and then um, got turned on to lifestyle medicine and, and did that. Um, and I went to the Harvard course for that. And then I was like, well, I did all the prereqs, so I guess I might as well take this board exam but just started really being an avid reader of research and studies. And, um, you know, it doesn't take many amazing patient experiences to teach a physician that there's really something that they need to learn about. We've both been managing diseases for our careers. And then suddenly there's this tool available to us that actually takes the disease away. Completely mind blowing, you know, like, 
we're so, and management, it, it's just that word management that almost irks me now. Mm -hmm. um, but it's the word that we are trained with, you know, that we manage this disease. There's no talk about really reducing the need for medications, deprescription, like that's not talked about in residency training or even fellowship. It was something I sort of had to realize on my own. Um, because, you know, in all these algorithms for like hypotension and hyperlipidemia and diabetes, the first step is lifestyle modification. And it seems like we just skip right past that step and talk about medications. And what I've found in patient after patient after patient is lifestyle modification is far more powerful than any medication that we have on the market. But it takes time. And you know, as well as I do, that the healthcare system is um, the reimbursement in the healthcare traditional insurance model is uh, not always uh, very helpful in doing right by our patients in the way of preventative lifestyle coaching. You could just say never. It's never, it's never geared, it's not geared at all towards, uh, uh, towards that. In our type one patients, we as endocrinologists calculate how many grams of carbs a patient can have for every unit of insulin. So for all my type one patients, I can tell you, um, for X number of carbs, they'll need one unit of insulin. When she had come to me on a ketogenic diet, she had an insulin to carb ratio of one to six. So for every six grams of carbs, she needed one unit of, of insulin, which is very insulin resistant for a, a type one diabetic. We, they typically have a carb ratio of one to 12 or one to 14. Um, and, and her LDL cholesterol was like 180 and she was, she's lean. I told her, look, I've been learning about this plant-based thing. I'm eating a plant-based diet. Do you want to try it? And she was like, yes, I'll try anything because this isn't working. And also it sounds like a diet that I can actually feed my kids. And within two weeks, no joke, her insulin to carbohydrate ratio was one to 16. So we nearly tripled her insulin sensitivity. Her insulin doses had decreased significantly. And she went from eating 30 grams of carbs a day to nearly 200 grams of carbs a day. Good carbs, healthful carbs from fruits and vegetables. And her quality of life was so much improved. And within three months, her LDL cholesterol with no change in statin or cholesterol lowering medication dropped to 80. She's doing great. And her A1C improved. <laughs> so, you know, that's something that I never uh, considered before that someone who's on a high fat diet, uh, you know, I, I know I obviously knew that that's going to make you more insulin resistant, but I, I guess I, I never thought about the fact that it makes you more Does it make you more resistant to even the exogenous insulin that you inject? Yeah. And, it, and that makes sense, but I hadn't thought about it. You want to improve or decrease your resistance no matter what type of diabetes you have. Because yeah. whether you're making your own insulin or whether you're taking exogenous insulin, you want it to be as effective as possible. Right, and the typical type one phenotype is someone who's lean and they're typically pretty sensitive to insulin, which is thought to be one to 12 or one to 14. Now, there are some people who are on a very low fat plant-based diet who have insulin sensitivities that are like one to 25. Um, we haven't studied that sort of insulin sensitivity enough to know that, hey, that's way better than a 1 to 16 or a 1 to 14. But we do know there are insulin resistant type 1s. We see that all the time now that obesity is so prevalent. 
And we know that mm -hmm. we don't want our type ones to be insulin resistant with a carb ratio of like one to six or one to three. Gosh, some, some patients have like a one to one. Um, um, well, how can they eat? Any, they can't even eat any carbs. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they'll have to take a boatload of insulin to mm -hmm. <laughs> overcome come the insulin resistance. But yeah, so I started seeing patients like that where um, I was just like blown away by the outcomes. Um, and I just, so I just kept reading, you know, it, I, literally a day doesn't go by that I don't read an article because I just find it so fascinating. Uh, I just kept kind of talking to my patients about this and everybody's sort of on their path, right? Not everybody's going to flip the switch like this woman did, but I saw so much improvement in lipid profiles and um, decrease in need for a medication that I'm just pretty confident in, in recommending a plant-centric diet. You know, I always say it's, it's plant-based. It doesn't have to be plant-perfect. It doesn't have to be plant-only for everybody, but just make plants the majority of your plate and you will see some benefits. How does an individual who's now by their primary physician diagnosed with diabetes or thyroid issues, how do they then make their way to an endocrinologist? At what point in that, in that journey? Yeah, so such a hard, uh, hard thing to, to find, right? <laughs> a great endocrinologist. So my humble opinion is that every patient with diabetes should have the opportunity to see an endocrinologist early in their disease. And the reason for that is because we, we are focused on diabetes, right? We spend years of our life doing diabetes over and over and over and over again. I mean, my fellowship, I would see dozens of patients every single day and I would chart every single blood sugar they'd ever had in the hospital um, and look at the insulin doses, see how different variable, how they're... IV fluids affected their glucose, how their, what they ate, ask the nurse what they ate, um, how their TPN affected their blood sugars. You know, we are extremely meticulous people who have gone through this rigorous training of just understanding blood sugar on a level that I could, couldn't even come close to after my internal medicine residency. And so now diabetes is a part of who I am. It is just you know, somebody talks about a blood sugar and I can already, I'm, I'm 10 steps ahead of where I would have been had I not had this extra training. Also, we are focused, right? So when you go to a primary care doctor, and I'm so grateful that we have so many wonderful PCPs out there who I know are working so hard and doing their very best, but they're tasked with a hundred different things. You know, they have to be the medical home. They have to deal with, you know, patients with type 2 diabetes often have multiple other medical problems, coronary artery disease, obesity, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, um, potentially other, um, other diseases. And so, and primary care doctors aren't given that much time to spend with their patients. And so um, without time, expertise, and ability to focus on one thing in a visit, it makes it very difficult for them to give the same level of care as we are able to because we have more training, more resources, more focus, and um, 
resources in terms of medication reps, new data. Um, people are always coming to us with new data. It just falls in my lap, right? And so, um, so I think that if you're diagnosed with diabetes or any sort of specialized disease, at some point early in the disease, just see a specialist. And that's my opinion as a specialist. Before, when I graduated from internal medicine residency, I, I thought I knew a lot, right? I thought I knew a lot and would have been less likely to refer to a specialist. Now that I know more about and I know what specialty training is, I am much more likely to refer to another specialist, even though I'm an internist too, because I just know the depth and breadth of training. Um, and so I really do recommend that um, diabetics try to see an endocrinologist at least once early in their disease, but that's hard to do. We're few and far between. In, in San Antonio, most endos have a three-month wait list. It's hard to see your endocrinologist frequently. 85% of patients with diabetes are seen by PCPs. So one of my goals is to find a way to scale myself um, to provide education online that's good. Um, we often get just the very complicated patients with complications already or patients on insulin. The problem, though, is I've still yet to see a patient referred to me who is on an optimized regimen. And that's sure. not a knock on any physician. It's just, um, it's just reality, right? And so I always just feel so bad when I get this patient who's 20 years in, and I haven't been around <laughs> for 20 years, but let's say they were 10 years in they've been mismanaged and now they have kidney disease and eye disease and all these things that I just like, gosh, I wish you saw me 10 years ago, you know, or gosh, I wish you didn't have to go or patients who were hospitalized for DKA because they were treated for type two when they really had type one or just these things that it just makes me feel like, gosh, I wish I had more access. I wish that these patients didn't have to go through this because patients don't know. They don't know what medical training is and they shouldn't have to know. Tell us a little bit about thyroid disease and the role plant-based nutrition plays in that How and how can we help it? There are a few different um, types of thyroid disease that we commonly see. Hypothyroidism secondary to Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which is an autoimmune disease. Autoimmune attack of the thyroid is the most common for sure. Um, and then, and so that's underactive thyroid. And then there's overactive thyroid too, hyperthyroidism, um, most commonly due to Graves' disease, which is another autoimmune disease that there's antibodies that stimulate the thyroid to produce more thyroid hormones. And then other forms of hyperthyroidism are thyrotoxicosis due to thyroiditis or um, you know, post that can be postpartum or postviral. You can have a toxic adenoma. So that's like a benign tumor producing excess thyroid hormone. People can get hyperthyroidism from amiodarone toxicity. So different, different, um, ways to get hyperthyroidism. Um, and then the other thyroid disease that we see fairly commonly, but not as much is thyroid cancer. And so actually an endocrinologist treats thyroid cancer, not an oncologist. So, um, and then patients can have hypothyroidism if they have their thyroid removed for um, either hyperthyroidism or thyroid cancer. Um, so we see, see those pretty often. Um, and I think we, there's a lot out there about nutrition and the thyroid. Um, so I'm going to kind of touch on the common things that we 
see. So one is gluten and hypothyroidism. So there is really no data that suggests that if you are diagnosed with Hashimoto's thyroiditis, you have to be gluten-free. Now, Hashimoto's is an autoimmune disease. And when you have one autoimmune disease, you are at higher risk of having another autoimmune disease. And so patients with Hashimoto's are at higher risk for developing another autoimmune disease called celiac disease. So if you have Hashimoto's and you have celiac disease, then you have to, uh, you should avoid gluten because of the celiac disease. Um, there are also people who just feel crummy when they eat gluten. And they may have gluten intolerance, even though they don't have antibodies for celiac disease. Those people too, it's fine to avoid gluten. You don't have to eat gluten. But if you have Hashimoto's and you have no intolerance to gluten, you feel fine eating gluten, um, and you have no qualms about it, then there's no um, there's nothing wrong with eating gluten because it doesn't, there's no studies that show it progresses thyroid disease worse. It may, it increases needs for medications, um, those kinds of things. So gluten's a big one. Um, and then another one that we hear about often is soy. So what's the deal with soy and thyroid? So soy, um, is a common food that we eat in a plant-based diet, right? Um, and, and so it would be sort of unfortunate if patients with thyroid disease couldn't eat this, um, plant-based protein. And the good news is that I actually researched this, uh, a couple days ago to make sure that I was on point. Um, there, there's an article in thyroid, which is a big, is the big thyroid journal that says adults with, um, hypothyroidism should not be counseled to avoid soy. Now, what, but where does the question even come from, right? So there are two things that, two things that studies have found, and this is cited by the hypothyroidism guidelines um, by the American Thyroid Association. One is that soy can impair the absorption of thyroid hormone supplementation, so levothyroxine synthroid. And so patients who are, have a high soy diet may require higher doses of medication than they would if they didn't eat soy. That doesn't mean their thyroid isn't working as well. It means they're just not absorbing as much of the medication. And the other thing was there was one small study of about 60 participants that showed an increased rate of subclinical hypothyroidism converting to overt hypothyroidism in patients who ate more soy. So perhaps patients with, you know, potential need for medication, but not necessarily need for medication, if they were asymptomatic, that's the subclinical group, progressed to um, a point in hypothyroidism where they did definitely need medication um, with higher soy. But like I said, it's a, it was a 60-person study, and there was only one study that I could find that, that showed that. So we certainly need more, more information to make a good good assessment of what that all means. And the last thing I wanted to touch on was iodine. So if you go to GNC or these supplement stores, you'll see iodine supplement, thyroid supplements that has like thousands and thousands of milligrams of iodine in it. Stay away from those, run away from them as fast as you can. The thing about iodine is it can, especially in high doses, it can 
affect the thyroid in unpredictable ways. So it can cause profound hypothyroidism or it can cause um, profound hyperthyroidism. We've seen patients in the hospital with this. Patients with um, contrast, they can, contrast has iodine in it if they get a CT scan or something like that. That can cause the thyroid to become overactive. So we know this from a medical standpoint. Um, so we get enough iodine from our soil that our fruits and veggies are grown in from iodized salt. We don't have iodine deficiency here like, you know, people in Africa might. And mm -hmm. so um, don't take massive iodine supplements. I know prenatal vitamins have iodine in them. They don't have excessive amounts, so that's okay. But um, don't take iodine supplements from your favorite vitamin store. We're very excited to introduce an episode with Dr. John McDougall, a pioneer in plant-based nutrition as well as in lifestyle medicine. Dr. McDougall's book, The Start Solution, was the first book that introduced me to the idea of cooking plant-based foods and cooking without oil. Back in 2012, when the book was released, I would experiment with his recipes. Fast forward seven years and I find myself at the American College of Lifestyle Medicine's annual conference listening to Hans Diel present the Lifetime Achievement Award to Dr. McDougall. This award is presented to individuals who have been devoted to the cause of lifestyle medicine for half of their lives or more. In this interview, Dr. McDougall will share a brief history of his life's work. Over the course of his career, Dr. McDougall's efforts have been to try to figure out ways to get people to adhere to a diet that will reverse diseases. Dr. McDougall is a board-certified internist and author of 13 national best-selling books, the international online McDougall newsletter, and co-founder of the 10-day Live-In McDougall program in Santa Rosa, California. He is a clinical instructor for four schools, training young physicians, and licensed in five states in the U.S. to practice. His most recent passion was made evident during his acceptance speech. He spoke on climate change. Let's welcome Dr. McDougall. Thank you. Thank you. Very nice. Really nice to uh, talk to people who are uh, enthused about making a difference in people's lives. And um, I'm happy that you consider me worthwhile in terms of giving you some of uh, my experiences over the last, probably, well, last 50 years. I've been in medicine since uh, 1968, wow. so 51 years. Mm -hmm. And doing this kind of medicine for 40 years, uh, more than 40 years. Uh, and when I, when I say this kind of medicine, I mean uh, I've approached patients' problems from the point of view of diet because at least 80% of the problems that people suffer from in developed countries like the United States are due to what they eat, at least 80%. And uh, so all my uh, uh, efforts over the last, say, 40 years since I discovered this, and we'll go into how I discovered it in a minute, have been to try and figure out ways to get people to uh, understand and then to make a choice to adhere to a diet that will reverse their diseases and give them control of their health. So that's, that's been my effort, and it's gone from uh, teaching people in a general office setting to community settings to uh, actually a live-in program I've been running for, gee whiz, I ran it for 16 years at a hospital, and I've run it now for 17 years at a spa. 
So I've had the opportunity to really run an ideal type of uh, teaching situation for quite a while. And that is a situation where we can lock people up, we can feed them healthy food, and we can give them an intensive education. And uh, that's the ideal way to help people. The way I got started in this is I was a very frustrated medical student. Um, you know, I really couldn't see myself helping people, to tell you the truth. And I, of course, took it personally. And uh, in my senior medical uh, year, I was introduced to a, uh, my first mentor. His name was Dennis Perkett. And he was a surgeon from Edinburgh, Scotland. And he and some of his friends went to Uganda and worked for, well, he worked there for 17 years. That's in Africa. And they eat in Africa in this community a diet similar to what I eat. I recommend and I eat myself. And that's a diet based on starches, various kinds of potatoes, corn, other grains, and so on. And uh, what they found, what he found, and he became the head of Ministries of Health, is he found during his 17 years of head of Ministries of Health and overseeing 1,000 hospitals, which meant 10 million people, he found that these people had no hemorrhoids, no colon cancer, no deep vein thrombosis, no coronary artery disease. He found one heart attack, and that was in a judge that trained in London and came back and had a heart attack. Hmm. Otherwise, he found no heart attacks in 17 years of taking care of overseeing, you know, thousands of doctors, over a thousand hospitals, and 10 million people. No, no breast cancer, no multiple sclerosis, no rheumatoid arthritis. So this man came to my hospital, which happened to be in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and opened my eyes. And uh, from there, it went to an experience I had working on a sugar plantation in Hawaii. Uh, that's where I went after medical school to work on the sugar plantation. Well, actually, I went from medical school to an internship in Honolulu. And then from there, falling in love with Hawaii, I decided uh, to stay, and there was a job open on the Big Island where I was a sugar plantation doctor, and that really changed my life. I pretty much learned everything I know now during this experience that occurred between 1973 and 1976. Uh, I was taking care of 5,000 people that were quite diverse in population and uh, practices. Uh, these were people that were originally from the Philippines, Japan, China, and Korea. Uh, when I say the originally, I'm talking about the grandmas and the grandpas that I took care of. Mm -hmm. uh, they came to Hawaii to start a new life, and they had their children, and then they had their grandchildren, etc. And so I had these uh, three generations or four generations sometimes of uh, families who had the same genetic material, so they inherited the same things who lived in the same environment, except for one thing. And that is the people who were from the Philippines, Japan, and China originally, learned a diet of rice and vegetables, which they brought with them when they migrated to Hawaii. And they maintained their diet, and they maintained their good health. Their kids, of course, learned more of the Western diet, and they got fatter and sicker. So right in front of me, I saw this. And uh, that's how I learned that what we were eating was killing us. Now, of course, I had my own health problems uh, because I ate the rich American diet with enthusiasm. And that kind of gave me the right to talk to people about what rich food can do. Um, I used to weigh 90 pounds more than I weigh now. Wow. Uh, 
I had a major stroke when I was 18. I had uh, abdominal problems, all kinds of things. I would have been dead probably when I was 30, or at least have had major uh, vascular surgery by the time I was 30. It's not unusual for somebody to have a, a heart attack or bypass surgery at 30, is it? You know, it's crazy. Uh, when I started, I've been in practice a little over 20 years. Uh, back in the late 90s, you know, our average patients were late 50s, 60s, 70s. Uh, and now here we are uh, 20 plus years later, and I'm seeing patients present in their 30s and 40s. Uh, so it's, uh, you know, it's coming at a younger age. Yeah. Well, you know, I ate the American diet with enthusiasm when I was a young, young man, a child. And as a result, I had something that back then only occurred in one in a thousand uh, uh, children, and that is I had a massive stroke at 18. And it was due to closure of uh, the lacuna artery in the brain, which you all know uh, what that artery is. And so I got complete paralysis to the left side of my body, yeah, which now, still for 54 years later, I you know, have effects. I walk with a you know, significant limp, et cetera. But you know, I didn't die. Uh, I was in the plantation. I learned a different way of eating. I saw before me that people who lived on rice and vegetables as opposed to their kids and grandkids who were learning the American diet of meat and dairy, uh, the difference in health was drastic. Mm -hmm. uh, so I at least knew you could prevent disease by the time I finished my three years as a plantation doctor on the Big Island of Hawaii. And then I uh, uh, went back into training to become a good doctor because uh, not many of my patients were getting well, as any doctor knows who treats chronic disease. Mm -hmm. yep. The pills and potions really don't solve the problem. Right. Uh, you got to fix the problem, which is the food. So it was, uh, you know, quite frustrating for me. But I went back into training to become a more educated doctor, and I became a board-certified internist. Uh, at that time, which was um, between 1976-1978, I developed a passion for the scientific literature. And I had the fortune of having the Hawaii Medical Library right at the hospital where I was uh, working. And so every spare minute I spent in the library reading scientific studies. And I found out that, you know, I didn't discover this. I didn't discover the fact that eating rich food makes people fat and sick, just like the kings and queens of old. No, I didn't discover the fact that if you, uh, if you feed people a, a diet high in starch, in other words, potatoes, rice, corn, that they get better from these dietary diseases or in populations worldwide, and we're talking about billions of people who live on such diets of rice and vegetables and so on, are um, thin and healthy and hardworking and warlike people. And I'll give you some examples. Um, people of Central America, the Aztecs and the Mayans, they're known as the people of the corn. For 1300 years, they had civilizations that, that thrived. Know, having children, wars, athletic events, you know, et cetera, living basically on corn. Yeah. Or if you go a little further south to South America, to the Andes, you find the Incas. And the Incas lived on potatoes, except for the, when they went to war and then they changed to quinoa because it was easier to carry. Yeah. Uh, when you think about the Far East, people think about rice. Up until 1980, the Chinese had a diet that was uh, essentially 90% rice, 90% rice, white rice. And that should tell you something. I mean, white rice isn't the ideal as brown rice, but it's not a deal breaker. When you have uh, 2 billion people, 
thriving on a diet based on white rice. Um, so uh, you can think of examples if you're a traveler or if you're a historian, or you can think of experiences in your life that uh, tell you that folks who live on diets based on starch, starches are like corn and rice and beans and potatoes and sweet potatoes. They're not things like kale and lettuce and broccoli and cauliflower. These I call green and yellow vegetables. They're just part of your diet along with a little fruit. It's mainly starch. About 80-90% of your diet should be starch. Just to complete the story, you know, after my uh, uh, residency program and I became a board certified internist, I went out to practice. Uh, unfortunately, for the next few years, I had to chase ambulances to put uh, shoes on the kids. So I had to practice, you know, some standard medicine that I'd learned. And uh, Finally, in 1980, let's see, about 1986, 85, I really gave up practicing standard medicine. And I started practicing only dietary approaches to the problems. We started a program in California in 1986, where uh, it was at a hospital, St. Lena Hospital. And we took care of, oh, probably two, 3,000 people over the next 16 years and had tremendous success. And now we run the program in Santa Rosa, California at a luxury spa. We take care of people uh, that come privately. We actually run six programs a year for the public. And then we take care of businesses, for example, CenturyLink Telecommunications. We're running a program right now for them. We take care of employees of Whole Foods. We've taken care of the employees of Blue Cross Blue Shield in the past. So, you know, employers are interested, very much interested in uh, keeping their employees healthy for obvious reasons. And that is that healthcare costs are terrible and having sick employees is not good for your business. These days, uh, I do a lot of writing, I work on legislation. Uh, I am the ultimate overseer of the McDougal program, which is in Santa Rosa, California, I'm actively seeing people. And if you're very serious about wanting to get your health back, I encourage you to uh, take that step. But, you know, you may be an independent learner and you may not need any help. And you could go to my website, Dr. McDougal, it's drmcdougal.com, and uh, everything's there, free. 600 different recipes and there are instructions on how to do the program and lectures. And you'll be amazed. In fact, uh, that was one of the comments both of you made is how uh, you can go to the website you can download educational videos for free. Yes. It is amazing, yeah. It is amazing. Well, you know, Mary and I had uh, the great fortune of uh, learning excellent health, how to have excellent health almost a half a century ago. And we have. Uh, I'm 72. She's 73 years old. And we're, we're doing We're functioning at a very high level. It, it worked out well for us, and we're very thankful that we learned this. Uh, because, uh, you know, I was headed personally <laughs> for a very dismal future in my personal health. And uh, kind of, you know, we felt obligated to share this with other people. And, uh, doing it free may be the right way. I don't know if people respond to money. Yeah. Uh, there is great value. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's good to put the information out there uh, for those who want it. But sometimes yeah. people feel it's more important if they paid for right, it. Right, right. So we, we should charge. But... You can get everything you need basically free on the website, working with a responsible healthcare person uh, to get, get you off your medications uh, to uh, you know, make necessary adjustments.
you know, that, that, that at most people need. Uh, but again, we run a, a live-in program. We've run all kinds of uh, different programs where we can spend more time with the people and give them more information and experiences themselves. Uh, the nice thing about the 10-day uh, programs that were run in Santa Rosa, California, are that people really get the experience. You know, they're captive. Uh, we feed them really great meals, and uh, they're amazed at how good they they taste. We give them adequate spicing, give them a little bit of salt, give them a little bit of sugar. And, uh, you know, they find that, you know, within two or three days, they're feeling great. Uh, within about you know, two or three days, we have them off most of the medication. So this is an experience, an intense experience that, uh, you know, occasionally people want. And we're there to provide it. But, hey, the website, drmcdougal.com, it's all there. Your 10-day living program includes great meals, lectures, social opportunities, and a psychologist? We do, but our psychologist is different than other psychologists. He's the best psychologist in the world, Doug Lyle. Mm -hmm. And uh, he teaches you basic principles of the way the human being works and why we're kind of trapped into the way we behave. See, he calls it the pleasure trap. Yes. So, yeah, we have an educational program, but it's not the traditional, oh, you need to think good thoughts or uh, lay down on this couch and we'll make you better. Uh, it's more like, you know, that's the way people are, understand natural human behaviors, and then take the important steps. You know, uh, they get to a point after a few days where they really realize the food is good mm -hmm. and that they really don't need the medication. They see their numbers changing. We found that we can get uh, about 90% of people off all of their medication or reduce their medication to a, a reasonable level in a period of uh, actually about seven days. Isn't that amazing? The, the time frame, does it, it still blows me away to, to understand that in just a matter of a few days to a couple of weeks, uh, these changes can occur. Right, well, you know, let, you know, let me give you some time frames. Uh, I tell people within 24 to 48 hours, they won't have any more indigestion. They won't have any more constipation. The oily skin starts to disappear. They start feeling better. Uh, we see drops in blood pressure within about, you know, first or second day, tremendous drops. Same thing with the blood sugars, tremendous drops. In fact, when somebody comes in with diabetes, I have to reduce the medication immediately. Mm -hmm. uh, with type 2 diabetes, I most often take them off all their insulin and all their diabetic pills. With type 1, I have to cut their insulin by about a third because the new food makes insulin work more efficiently, et cetera. And I have low blood sugars unless I cut their insulin down. So I do that with type 1s. Uh, patients with uh, inflammatory diseases like ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, et cetera. Uh, well, the arthritis is usually start to get better in about four to seven days. Uh, the, some of the arthritis is, it takes a little bit longer. Those classified as lupus, I find take a little bit longer to improve than say rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, bowel diseases may take mm, four, three, four months to get better. Mm -hmm. But the healing is really rapid. Let me ask you as a vascular surgeon, how long it takes people to heal? I mean, if you take a slice somebody up, which you probably do every day, how long does it take before their wounds healed? How long does it take before, even if a broken bone's involved, how long does it take before the wound and the broken bone are healed? Right. It's, uh, you know, for incisions, seven to 10 days. 
yeah. uh, broken bones a few weeks, you know, a few weeks, maybe three months, maybe four months. So, you know, if, if a program really works, if it really addresses the problem, you shouldn't have to believe that it's going to work for the next 10 years and buy into a bunch of supplements and to a bunch of doctor visits uh, that have not done you any good. Mm-hmm. You know, I give it four months uh, at most. And uh, most of the people have recovered within four months. Now, there are a lot of problems uh, that people have that are chronic. And for example, arthritis patients may have bent fingers. They're not going to straighten out by eating potatoes. Mm-hmm. So you have to be realistic as to what you're going to get. But it's phenomenal and, uh, and how rapidly people get well. In your field, doctor, uh, what uh, Dr. Ornish showed, in fact, he didn't show it first. Uh, Dr. Peter Quo showed it before that. And uh, several other physicians showed it before that. Matter of fact, you can find those scientific papers by Dr. Williams, et cetera, on my website. It's, uh, they're part of the course, which I know you've taken. It's part of the course. I, I, I bring in all their basic research that they did in the 50s and 60s, where they showed by changing people to the kind of diet that I teach, which we should get into in a minute. Uh, they, they showed that you could get not between 90 and 100% relief of angina, chest pain, in people with severe coronary artery disease within uh, three weeks. Yeah. And uh, in one of the studies by uh, Peter Quo, what he did was he attached people to an EKG machine and he fed them uh, high fat meals versus uh, meals that were low fat and high carbohydrates, same volume, same number of calories. And he found that the high fat meals precipitated chest pain within the next few minutes of eating them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, at, and he also did EKG at the same time and found ST depressions that occurred with the pain. So he realized back there, and this is work done in the 50s and 60s, he realized that you could reverse ischemic changes in the heart muscle in a very short period of time, or you can induce them by feeding a high-fat diet. And what do Americans do is they eat this high-fat diet three, four times a day. But again, going back to your field of cardiovascular medicine, you probably heard that heart disease really did not occur as a significant disease in America until the mid 1800s. You know, it's only a modern disease. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you may have heard that for, you know, thousands of years, I believe, people have known that uh, folks with narrowed heart arteries, they get chest pain after meals. You know, that's, that's one of the common things taught to us doctors. Postprandial angina. Yes. Yeah. And what we're taught is that it's because there's the blood flows to the intestine and robs the heart of a blood supply. But that's not what happens. What happens is by eating the high-fat American diet, you drop the oxygen tension in the blood by 20%, and you cause spasms in the arteries, and you cause sludging of the blood, and you induce chest pain in people with narrowed heart arteries, that we call angina. So uh, anyway, we've known about this for a long time. The problem, of course, is uh, the same problem of all of human beings, and that is we're motivated by money. Mm-hmm. And there's very little money uh, in teaching people to do the right things. Right. There's a lot of money in doing vascular surgery and giving out pills and so on. And we have uh, a healthcare system in the United States where it's the only great growing segment of our economy, and we're supporting that by borrowing money from China. I just want to make sure that I, folks understand the diet that I teach. Yes. Uh, and I will be, you know, real basic about it. You, 
you can describe the McDougal program, the McDougal diet, in two sentences. One is uh, the McDougal diet is a starch-based diet with the addition of fresh fruits and vegetables, or they can be frozen fruits and vegetables. The McDougal diet does not contain any animal products and any free oils. Okay, so animal products could be anything. It could be frog legs. They could be you know pig's ears, etc. Uh, no animal products in the diet. And uh, as far as free oils are concerned, these would be things like olive oil, corn oil, safflower oil. There's, all, there's oil in the food naturally, like in oranges and potatoes and rice and so on. So uh, you add uh, no free oils. Those would be oils that you know, come in a bottle usually uh, to the diet. And instead, you base your diet on starch. And that would be rice, corn, potatoes, pasta, breads, and so on things that you love. You naturally love these things. When you look at your plate, you should see about 90% of it's starch. And what is wrong with free oils, including olive oil? Well, oil is uh, not natural. Uh, oil, oil, oil does not occur anywhere in nature. Uh, it always has to be processed from a food. And what you do is you take, so for example, you can just press olives and you separate the oil from all the other ingredients. And of course, the more refining you do, the more separation you have. Uh, you, you separate the oil from the vitamins, minerals, other phytoplant chemicals. Uh, these chemicals, vitamins, minerals, etc., are necessary for the proper metabolism of the oil. If you eat the oil, in other words, you take all the oil out of the orange, and you leave all the pulp, all the vitamins, minerals, everything else behind, you're no longer eating the food. You're eating an isolated concentrated nutrient. And it happens to be the most concentrated in calories, so it's gonna be fattening. The mantra you ought to carry around in your head is the fat you eat is the fat you wear. And there's no more concentrated fat than free fat. So that would be olive oil, corn oil, etc. Uh, also, we know that these oils uh, are very strong as far as their medicinal properties or toxic properties. Uh, at, both, at most, they're medicinal. Uh, the oils will suppress the immune system, help a bit with arthritis. Uh, the oils do things that, you know, vascular surgeons are happy about, and that is that they thin the blood, the omega-3 fats. But, you know, these are drugs, and so they have adverse effects. For example, when you give an omega-3 fat to thin the blood to reduce the risk of a clot forming in the, in the blood vessels, uh, you also increase the risk of bleeding and bleeding to death. Uh, when you suppress the immune system with oils, you suppress the entire immune system. You don't just relieve the arthritis, you know, as far as pain relief goes. You suppress the immune system and fights infection. So you have a higher risk of getting the flu or other infections. Because uh, these uh, uh, vegetable oils, uh, they suppress the immune system. They also allow cancer to grow much faster. So, uh, you know, they're drugs at best, and they're serious poisons at worst. So we, we don't recommend free oils. It's very, very easy for people to get away from oil. And once you do, as you folks have, it's, it's so repulsive. It it's, you know, becomes very hard to eat out. Almost everybody puts oil in their food, but you'll learn. There's ways to do it. Uh, we have techniques. In fact, they're free in a lecture that my wife gives on the website on how to eat out. Uh, 
So, you know, you can make the kind of changes that we recommend and still live a normal life. But most importantly, right now, these days, this blindness is putting us in a precarious situation where we have an environmental emergency. Yes. People do not see it. And uh, we're at a point now where we may be at a point of no return. And even our politicians uh, during our Democratic uh, national conventions. So they talk about the environment, they talk about the new Green Deal, but they don't talk about the fact that the livestock industry creates at least half of the greenhouse gases out there. And predictions have been if people would change to the kind of diet that we're trying to get them to eat, a diet based on starch, that we could reduce global warming gases almost overnight by 50 to 70 percent. Mm-hmm. So this blindness is a very concern to me these days because I have, you know, three children, seven grandchildren. And the most powerful step that we can make in giving us time on planet Earth is to switch to a starch-based diet. And then we can all buy Teslas and we can all put the solar panels on our roofs, which we have to do. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not trying to minimize the importance of this or getting rid of fossil fuel. But, you know, the food is something that everybody can do individually. And they could do it overnight. And it could become a world policy if our leaders would stand up. If Prime Minister Modi from India, if Mr. Putin from Russia, if Mr. Trump from the United States, if President Obama from the United States, you know, if all our world leaders would stand up and say, hey, folks, the meat and dairy industry have been lying to you. And the reason you're fat and sick and you're dying is because of the food industry. And we can change global warming and our trend towards killing our entire planet overnight by switching to a starch-based diet. Hey, you'd see some changes overnight. Right. Yep. No, I mean, I think there are four million kids out in the street. They're asking to save the world for their future. I mean, those kids would change overnight and become a social disgrace to eat the foods that are killing the planet. Um, you can obviously tell where I get excited these yeah. days. Uh, thank you again. Uh, it's an opportunity, a privilege to share what I know. We have a we have a world change. It's well worth saving. And uh, any any time we have an op- I have an opportunity to get involved with folks like you who are uh, willing and passionate, and able to get out to the community. You know, it's it's a great time for me. It's 